Good afternoon. Now call this work session to order. This is Board Chair Christian Dorsey, joined today by colleagues Vice Chair Garvey and Board Members Matthew Ferranti, Katie Crystal, and Takis Karantonis. Today marks our final budget work session, or hopefully final budget work session, and will include uh, a markup of some of the of potential changes that we can uh, make at this point in preparation of uh, considering the budget for adoption this upcoming Saturday. Uh, why don't we just begin with a discussion on what is known as the chairman's mark, which explains some ways of uh, reaching budget balance and outlining what decisions are still left to be made during this conversation. Of course, anything that is presented is open to revision and amendment in advance of budget adoption. So as we pull that up on the screen. I will explain it briefly and then we'll have a relative informal discussion before I'll formally move this and then it can be considered for amendment. So if we start up at the top to situate us where, where we sort of begin this balancing exercise, there's a total of 6.9 million in one-time funding available along with 3.8 million in ongoing funding for $10.7 million total. Uh, from that figure, there were a number of items that were recommended by the ma county manager uh, as a result of his mid-year and third quarter uh, revised budget estimates, and those are included on lines 30 through 43. And collectively, uh, those left the board with approximately 1.6 million in ongoing funding and 4 point something million in one-time funding available. Uh, from there, collecting uh, some sense of collective or consensus priorities, here are a number of additions that are included in lines 44 through 53. I'll explain them briefly. Line 44, this is to uh, increase the capacity um, at a, a relatively senior policy level to support the work at DHS. As we know, they have a very uh, important and substantial portfolio that far exceeds existing staff capacity to uh, proceed with as expeditiously and as thoughtfully as they would like. And so this would provide the ability for them to uh, add an FTE to provide some critical policy support. As part of this year's package of reductions that were solicited from all departments, the county manager himself proposed a reduction of an environmental management specialist, which is part of uh, what was the board's direction to significantly increase the coordination on uh, climate change uh, from his office. And so this restores that cut that the manager was voluntarily offering. Then the next three items, 46, seven, and eight, include ongoing funding in support of the partnerships that we have, the Clarendon Alliance, the Columbia Pike Partnership, and the Langston Boulevard Alliance. Uh, those three organizations have, with uh, minor exceptions, uh, been essentially flat for funding for the last several years. And uh, while there is a lot that they are providing and a lot that they still want to continue to provide, they are limited by their capacity to uh, hire the uh, requisite staff to fulfill those desires and they have much less, they have more limited, excuse me, uh, ways of having their budgets uh, 
rise to accommodate increasing staff needs uh, compared to our bids, for example. So this provides a level of up, updating and stabilization of their financial picture. Uh, Arlington Independent Media, somewhat similar story. Uh, this is to uh, restore funding that brings them approximately to where they were before we began a multi-year step down in funding for that organization. Uh, they are under new leadership and have a proposed different mix of uh, programs that they'd like to offer the county but do not have the uh, capacity at this point to deliver on those. And uh, the three partnership awards are from ongoing funding and the Arlington Independent Media uh, budget item is from one-time funding. There's also some interest in uh, participating in the capital contribution solicited from the Capital Area Food Bank for a facility that uh, serves their activities in Northern Virginia and that also support a number of Arlington nonprofit and faith-based organizations who receive food uh, for their food distribution programming from the Capital Area Food Bank. Big item includes uh, funding for AHIF, which <clears throat> collectively would now bring the uh, AHIF totals to about $14.5 million in this year, still uh, less than uh, what was provided in the last several fiscal years, but substantially more than the $8.9 million uh, dollars. What that would do is uh, take AHIF to covering uh, about one-third of the projected shortfall that would occur in, in fiscal year 25 as balances are drawn down and the ability to fund new projects become significantly compromised. So that would restore about one-third of that projected shortfall. And it would also provide the space uh, if there is uh, a program developed to uh, leverage AHIF to support affordability in expanded housing options development that would um, provide about a million and a half conceptually available for that. Uh, then for Culpeper Gardens, we have uh, heard significant uh, challenges that they have had with assisted living residents and not being able to provide the growing subsidy for income constrained seniors. Uh, this level of funding would uh, allow for at least eight seniors to uh, be subsidized at the levels that are required at Culpeper. And uh, last piece, this is a little bit of a change from what you saw this afternoon uh, where the original plan was to propose that there be some funding available for our Department of Technology Services to leverage consultant help uh, through an ongoing subscription that they have with uh, Gartner. Um, that has since been vetted and, and shown to be uh, able to be fulfilled through other means. So this proposal is to provide some capacity for the Department of Parks and Recreation to increase their program, programming and staffing of out-of-school time activities. They are doing some work to undergo what might be uh, necessary and desirable throughout the year. Uh, this provides the ability for them to implement them should uh, those decisions be reached before the next budget cycle. And altogether, that will leave, if we'll scroll down, approximately $15,000 in one-time funding available and a little less than $80,000 in uh, ongoing available for a total of $94,912. And these puts uh, collectively at two and a half FTEs to the roster. And 
everything okay? Is the total volume still the same with the change? Yeah. Mr. Chair? Yes, Mr. Karen Tonis. So on the, uh, just as a question, so the, um, uh, the, the addition on line 53 pro, uh, program and staffing for uh, uh, the uh, teen programs for DPR, uh, it seems like a direct conversion of the previous appropriation for the gardener's licenses is there any, or from staff, is there any insight whether this is a useful number for, yeah. for the purpose? I think it's a good starting point. Like I, um, right now DPR is really actively working on a series of new teen programming ideas, not only internally within parks, but they're talking with the District of Columbia, which has a whole suite of really innovative team programming that I think we can learn from, as well as with libraries, DHS, other partners in the county. I think that work is like one or two months away from being crystallized, no matter what, no matter, no matter what, I think we're gonna need staff. It's a good down payment. My expectation is we might be back next year's budget saying, oh, we need a little bit more, but we'll figure out a way to make do. Does, does that make sense? I think it's a great, it's, it's a really great start. <laughs> okay, so to understand that correctly, uh, this this would go to staffing. We don't know at this moment where this is one FTE or zero point eight FTEs or you know yeah. this is TBD. Right, TBD. Okay. Right, okay. right. But we often, um, very often, for some of these programmings, we use we use temp staff, and that's the way it kind of works. So I don't know. You know we can we can make those. Uh, bureaucratic FTE things work. And if we need to make an adjustment for an FTE, we can do so at closeout, if that makes sense. Does that, does okay. that work? Call <laughs> Mr. Chair. Yes, Ms. Crystal. I'll, I'll just note, to my understanding is that maybe Ms. Cowden would like to speak a little bit further to some of the work that the Department of Parks and Recreation has been doing following up on our request to investigate the idea of, out of extended out-of-school time programming, um, starting to think about which facilities might be ripe for it and learning from other nearby peer jurisdictions. So. Um, from my perspective, I would see this as, as almost seed money, so to speak, an opportunity to uh, do some near-term activities um, uh, to, to demonstrate, I think, uh, uh, some of the urgency that we're all feeling as a community, uh, whereas it may take a little bit longer for a long-term strategy to come together. Mr. Mr. DeFranti. Um, uh, just overall, um, Thank you for, for all the work and um, and broadly this is um, just a, it reflects housing climate um, seeking to serve our youth and many of the priorities that I think we've talked about over the past work sessions. Um, I'm mindful that there's you know 15 and nearly 80000 $80, dollars there's not we're sort of towards the final stages. I'll surface something without knowing that I've got a solution, and that is I have had a couple of conversations with, uh, and, and I guess this would be competing for what's left mostly, but I've had a couple of conversations with the, uh, one conversation with one of the judges and uh, with respect to, there's a criminal corrections unit which is essentially uh, probation, and because we have shifted our, to much more diversion, um, there's an indication that a half-time 
starting in January, there may be a need for someone to help relieve caseloads. To be transparent, there is a vacancy that they're working to fill, but vacancies are harder to fill when you have immense caseloads. And so I just want, I don't know if that quite fits, but the score that I talked a little bit with Ms. Cowan was about 47,000. Um, I don't quite, I think you count, you would count it as ongoing, but it's also a one time for next budget year. Um, we should do fiscally responsible uh, steps. And so I don't quite know that it fits, but I did want to just put it out there and kind of indicate that I have done a little homework on it. Uh, I just didn't, you know, didn't quite, and, and I think what you've done, uh, that would be probably the almost the one of the only additions, keeping in mind that we always have lots of additions that we would like and we just can't get to, but that's so just that's wanted. 47 for a half FTE and who would that, what department? 47.5, I, I think at this point it's Ms. Cowan is gonna know better than I, it's, it's Criminal corrections, I don't know whether it's situated with the sheriff or whether it's DHS or how it's situated. I think it's on uh, uh, row 27 of the other potential budget allocations. Uh, yeah, it's you. DHS, it's a community corrections unit is within DHS and it is, um, I believe it's in the Behavioral Health Division, CSB, I can't recall. But yes, the community corrections unit, it's about staffed at four, they're down one vacancy, their caseloads have been um, really, really high, almost double, like 90 a person once they get this vacancy filled, which is not unlike any other uh, story we've told you about clinicians that, that, that world. So hopefully that vacancy will be filled, but I think to get it, it was certainly an asset we heard about and just when we were racking and stacking all the priorities unable to fund during the manager's proposed budget. Okay. <coughs> so that would be through DHS, okay? And uh, just check. So, Mr. DeFranti, is this a, this is an amendment? Are we talking amendments? What are we doing right now? <laughs> well, he's, he's surfacing it right now, so I think so we can get what we're surfacing. Yeah. All right, I'm happy to surface something. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Ready? Okay. Thank you. Um, so, I uh, one thing I'd like to mention, which I've talked to some of my colleagues about, is that the climate FTE I think most likely will not. Um, I've I've talked with our with with Bill Ager and. Um, I have the impression that probably not ready to actually hire somebody till January, so I think a half an FTE or half the year would work there, which might be a place to pick up some extra money. Um, and as my colleagues know, I would like to put in 62,000 to get our um, our salaries, uh, county board salaries, up to the maximum that we can do right now. And my continuing effort to make county board salaries um, close to uh, an average income here in Arlington and make it more possible for more people to actually. Uh, uh, campaign for these positions. I know there are six people running right now, um, but people come at very different ports to their career, um, and I think it's harder and harder for experienced people uh, to actually run for these positions and hold them. So I would like to uh, offer that as something to put in. All right, so that number is 62? 62. 62. Mm -hmm. And that would be funded by? Ongoing. Taking uh, 130, I'm sorry, taking... Uh, well, there actually was 79 left, <laughs> so there was enough left originally when we started this discussion if we take uh, what Mr. DeFranti would like to do. Um, but I, th I think it may work. Somebody else will have to do the math, but I'm assuming if we cut the climate person back to a half a year, which I think is all we're going to actually be able to do, that would free up um, perhaps enough to make the difference. But I haven't on the fly been doing the math. Okay. 
So your potential offset is reducing the uh, environmental management specialist to to half, half, a, half a year, yeah. Right. And when I originally started, I didn't think I needed an offset because they were 79. Okay, great. Okay, any other discussion? And then we can, uh, well, actually, before we even do that, why don't I finish out just the balance of what we're doing for those who are keeping tabs at home. There is an implication for school funding for everything that has been done. And... <clears throat> Their one-time funding has uh, been modestly adjusted uh, based on the uh, mid-year and third quarter results. And then on the ongoing side, there's an additional, make sure I'm going to get this right, uh, $782,912 that is going to uh, flow to them. Now, just to be clear, if we applied our traditional revenue sharing principles, that number would be 782,912 plus 520. Um, however, we are uh, funding an initiative that we discussed through our work sessions where we will have behavioral therapists that are hired, supervised, and overhead provided by DHS, but who will be otherwise available as full-time uh, school employees. So as a result of that relationship, the staffing costs are being borne the direct staffing costs for the four FTEs are coming from the uh, school's transfer portion. And so with the uh, slight reduction in one-time funding available to them and the increase, the net increase in ongoing funding, there will be an additional $625,000 approximately that are going to schools as a result of this budget. Mr. Chu, I have a few yes. items I'd like to talk about that I am not actually going to offer, but I have some thoughts on. Is this the time to do that? You want to do that in concluding remarks? I'm not sure how you want to handle it. Tell you what, why don't we get our mark through and then yep. we can surface any other conversations since we have, you know, time is ours. Yes. Yeah. All right. I guess it's now time to see uh, if people want to look at amending this and we'll just follow our modified Roberts Rules of Order. So I'll just go ahead and move. Uh, this mark for further discussion, and I'll be in need of a second. Second. Seconded by Ms. Garvey. Already been discussed and explained, so why don't we move to uh, proposed amendments. Ms. Crystal. Well, I'm actually preparing Mr. DeFranti's uh, uh, indulgence. Happy to move your recommendation about the halftime behavioral health docket position. Um, if I have a second for it, I wanted to actually ask a clarifying question. Second. Okay, so I, I did want to be clear because one of the things of which I'm cognizant is that uh, DHS is, of course, in their funding uh, or their staffing crises as the entire field is experiencing right now. Um, we had had that listed as uh, a potential budget allocation for GDC. And my understanding were that the judges were interested in hiring somebody within court services for that role. Do I have that wrong? It's, it was exclusively a DHS role? You're, Ms. Count's going to know more. I did look at the, they asked, Originally, I was on a mental health docket. Right. Then in the proposed budget, there are mental health positions that are not court, but as I understand, are DHS. Just in DHS. And but when so you they prioritize. Go ahead, Ms. Kim. Yeah, and I think when you actually look at the letters that they submitted, they were advocating for the community corrections unit and the positions in DHS because it's the probation and pro parole counselors who, with the increased workload, the the level of support where you're on the behavioral health docket, but also on the increasing probation and parole, there's there's a whole lot more that goes into it in terms of um, 
meeting check-ins, uh, drug screening, just all the thing that comes with being on probation, and then the, the extra supports that are needed to be successful in the behavioral health docket. It's that true services, and that's provided via the community corrections unit embedded in behavioral health and DHS. So I didn't think they were looking for GDC for court services. It was really DHS is providing the backbone I of... See. Of that, and we have, a, like I said, a four-person unit right now with one supervisor. Two are filled. We have one vacancy. We've been struggling, but we've been HR has been awesome about trying to work through. Okay, what do we do on all these areas to get these right. positions filled? And I think right. we have some, as Matt and I were talking about the other day, some optimism that we're making good progress there. We don't feel that the caseload is going away, and this could also possibly facilitate the accommodation of the docket expansion. It would be difficult to do so without that resource. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. just, the success metrics wouldn't be there. So. Thank you. Yeah. I really appreciate that just <laughs> to speak to it. I, I think it is, it is worthy of inclusion, particularly given for the uh, relatively small sum that represents the balance. Um, I will note it. I think it would leave us uh, with, with a bit left over, so to speak. Um, there may be other claims on it, but um, uh, we, I believe, need to both authorize the creation of the FTE and fund it. Um, if there is some uh, balance remaining and there is an opportunity to bring that person on sooner than a half year and some additional dollars might allow for that flexibility, I would be supportive um, of an allocation above the, the 45000 um, But I think uh, assuming optimism, as you said, uh, that, that we may be able to bring more professionals on, certainly the opportunity to expand that docket is one that I think is uh, a closely held goal of all of us. So I, I think that is a, a worthy use of the remaining dollars. Thank you, Ms. Garvin. Yeah, thank you. So I'm, I realize the way we're doing it, I'm a little bit in a conundrum. So I, I think this is great. It's a good position. Um, but I only want to do it if we can um, cut the climate, because I have to do cut a trade-off. I need to leave enough funds for what I want to do, right, on the, on the board salaries. Um, so I'm not quite sure how to do that. So if we can reduce the climate FTE to start in January, which is, I think, when it will actually happen, which would free up enough money to cover this and to do um, what I would like with board salaries, then I'm fine with it. But if we're not doing that, then I won't be voting for it. And I'm not sure how to handle that, because I don't know where we're going to be. Yeah, it's a little tricky. I think we... Um my sense of reading the tea leaves is that we are, this is not going to be complex enough for us to keep the math straight in our heads and understand the implications of our decisions. Um, and if we end up in a situation where we approve um, more than we have the dollars, we'll go through a process of figuring out what the cuts are. All right, fine. So for that, for the moment, then I'm fine with this. All right, I'll just say for, for my own purpose, now that that's been explained, that this is a position to actually support DHS's role in, in assisting clients who are on probation and making sure that they can meet the requirements of that, I think this is actually a really important act. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the probation system is one that uh, can be really uh, difficult in terms of how it's stacked against someone who is on probation or parole. Um, their ability to, and not that I'm calling out anyone specifically in Arlington, but their ability to be subject to um, draconian conditions and people who uh, violate them based on trivial uh, transgressions is great. And having uh, an advocate, someone who can counsel and help support is a way to ensure that they can be successful, which I think is the goal. Um, anyone who is placed on uh, probation. So uh, that meets certainly with my support. So thank you for, for raising it. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Mr. Karen Tonis. Uh, in the same vein, I, um, I had 
a somber opportunity to see how it works and what happens when it doesn't work optimally. And it's uh, really a, a you know, probation system can be a mechanism of recycling people back to uh, in compliance and therefore with draconian consequences. So that's, that's a pillar of equity, uh, for an equitable uh, justice system to actually uh, equip this system with the best people we can possibly afford. Uh, so I'm, I support that and uh, we can uh, you know, work through the, uh, the reminder of the positions in the draft budget. Thank you. Any further discussion on this particular proposal? Now move to a vote. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? The ayes have it. That is included. You see the effect on our running total leaves about 32000 in ongoing, $47,000 total. But again, this is all fluid, so don't, don't worry. This is... You already explained to me it's fluid. I'm not, I'm not worried yet. <laughs> Ms. Garvey, do you, yeah, would you like I, to formally sure, propose Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll make a motion that we um, add um, 62000 for board salaries to increase our board salaries. Get us closer to a living wage for people doing this job and commensurate with the time and the skills needed. Is there a second? Second. Seconded by Mr. DeFranti. Any further discussion? I'll just say for my part, I intend to uh, not participate in this vote, uh, given that I am not going to be here ongoing, but certainly understand the spirit of what Ms. Garvey proposes. Does that mean you're abstaining? Mm -hmm. Oh, OK. This is a really interesting, if I may, Mr. Shit, this is a really interesting conversation. I'm thinking about this in light of the, you know, the increases last year, and we had talked about trying to get um, to something like the area median income for um, a one-person household. So I, I think that um, is reasonable. I am cognizant, however, that this is coming in context of our first year of um, negotiated wage increases uh, with employees, and that feels like a context in which um, I look at significant jumps in county board compensation a little bit differently. Um, notwithstanding Mr. Dorsey's comments about uh, um, uh, not participating in this vote, I, I, I will participate in this one. I think um, in some ways being most dispassionate about it uh, is uh, is helpful here. But um, I really, I, I'm, in other words, I think given the um, uh, sort of sense of wanting to find parity with the, the uh, general employee base after the negotiated salaries that we were considering this year by collective bargaining um, would not be voting for it. But I did want to associate myself with one of the arguments Ms. Garvey made, which is the idea of encouraging um, more individuals to run, uh, which is, I, I think, a really valid goal. And um, I know last year when we did the, uh, the $20,000 pay increases, we, we talked about that a lot. And um, I've been heartened by seeing the, the diversity of candidates who have come forward. So um, it, uh, irrespective of how this particular vote shakes out, I, I really agree with that, that motivation. So thank you. Thank you. And I, if I can say a few a little more. Well, right? let's yeah. get Mr. DeFranti okay. before mm -hmm. you get round yeah. two. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Ms. Garvey and Ms. Crystal, for your comments. Um, this is not uh, not the easiest. The motion was to add the 62,000. Um, and consistent with what you said, Mr. Chair, um, with respect to its relatively small amounts of money, I would certainly associate and support taking the 29,000 and ongoing and, and working it towards that 62,000. I am cognizant of the points that you make, Ms. Crystal, with respect to our uh, employee 
collective bargaining groups. Um, and I am aware of how much our community has asked us to invest in housing. I do think the sum is small enough that we cannot, it comes back to the principle for me, even sharing with uh, our employee groups, we cannot have it so only those with a, who bring a lot of means to this, to the possibility of running are able to afford to run. That is not in the long term or even I think medium and even short term interest and that's why I'll be supporting the amendment. I certainly understand the concerns you raised, Ms. Crystal, though. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Carantonis, then Ms. Uh, Garvey. Mr. Uh, Chair, I mean, thank you for, for the, the proposal and for thinking about that and for discussing this uh, openly. Um, it is truly, has been always a problem that the county board salaries have been so low that they required that a board member should, would, would have to have either a very wealthy partner or, or coming from a very wealthy uh, background or, or you know, working a second or a third job. Uh, this brings us a little bit closer with the action last year and this, this one brings us a little bit closer to a salary that can sustain a person and household uh, in, in this office in semi-decent uh, conditions. I, I believe that this is uh, warranted. And we, and we had uh, the opportunity to discuss that uh, the entire year with the community and with a lot of uh, you know, people who know how this uh, work uh, takes place here. And we actually had, uh, you know, we received a lot of understanding for, for this adjustment. Uh, it's still not a, a <laughs> very big adjustment. It's a, it's a decent enough adjustment. And um, I cannot overstate how important this is for uh, future board members to be able to, to look into this office and, uh, and, and find a, a way of financial viability to be able to serve. Okay, Ms. Garvey. Yeah, thank you, and I'll just add, I appreciate all, the, all of the comments, and it looks like I have support, so I'm not gonna wanna dig myself in a hole here. Um, but I wanna say it's, it's not just about allowing people to run, it's also to allow people to stay in these positions for a while. Often if you're um, at a point in your career where you don't need to have a whole lot of money, you don't have a family depending on you, you can't afford to do this, and then as life happens and you have children and things happen, then you, it gets harder and harder to manage on these, uh, on these salaries. Um, I think it really is a full-time position or darn close to, and it should be. Um, it wasn't in the past. And I also will say, I mean, I've been doing these elected positions for about 27 years now, I think. Um, there's never a good time to raise board salaries. They've always been low, and there's never a good time to do it. So um, I would like to do it now. So thank you. Thank you. So I'll just say for my part, to be clear, you know, when we did this four years ago, creating this max cap, I certainly envisioned that at some point the board would get to that max cap. So I do not uh, disagree with this in any way, shape, or form, but as someone who has made the choice not to stand for re-election, I don't feel I should ultimately be a part of the vote. Um, so I appreciate the discussion, and I think we're ready to move to a vote on including Ms. Garvey's proposal to uh, adjust board salaries up, up to the max allowable, which is a score a cost of 62,000 and ongoing. All those in favor, say aye. Aye. Any opposed? One no and one abstention. So by a vote of three to one to one, that is now included. And as you can see from our running total, this now puts us in the position of needing an offset. But before we get to a consideration of those, are there any other additions that people are interested in making to this mark? 
Mr. DeFranti. Yes, but not under the constraints that we have. There's tons. I mean, I, I just wanted to repeat the point that there are tons of additions that we all would wish to make, um, but fiscal responsibility and restraint um, dictates no. Thanks. Well, I've you, already reserved time to talk about yeah, some of this. We can speak <laughs> about those at length uh, in a little bit because it seems like we're, we're flowing through this. Any other additions? Mr. Karen Tonis? No, no additions. I just wanted okay. to say that it's extremely important to keep in mind that the investment in housing and also in, in payroll and salaries, that is part of the main budget that we're not discussing right now on the market. Okay, so we now have to actually deal with some balancing. So looking at our figures, we are now in the red. Um, lost the spreadsheet on the screen, so let me just refresh mine here. All right, so we uh, need to come up with uh, about $30,000 in, or 20, yeah, 29,592 in ongoing dollars. Ms. Garvey. So I'll, I'll propose again my suggestion before, but we can, it doesn't have to be a whole year to take that out of the, um, the additional, uh, what are we calling it, environmental management specialist, because I think it's gonna be a while before that position can be hired. Um, it looks like it would not have to even be an entire year, so. Okay, is, is there, that's a motion, is there a second? It's, it's in Here. fact three is there quarters of a year, or two, yeah, three quarters of a year, that if, if the, if the 30,000 would be deducted uh, from 138,000, that would be the equivalent of nine months. Um, but that you could work nine months, you're only taking out yeah. three. Yes. Yeah, so instead of starting in July, you'd start in July, August, September, October. September, October. So your proposal is to fund a, a 0.75 for that. That sounds great. Thank you for getting me to there a better motion. Okay, hearing none, that fails. Okay. So we'll now move to any other proposals to offset. Mr. DeFerranti. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Ms. Garvey, for the, the, the 0.75 was certainly tempting. Uh, I'm struck by the um, I am pleased that we have invested deeply in AHIF, and I will certainly be accountable. 800,000 in ongoing uh, towards AHIF is um, much, much more than I had, uh, had hoped um, because of, of our third quarter economy projections. And so I would propose that we take <coughs> the necessary amount to reach, which is somewhere in the, I don't know, 20, 28,000, 30,000 in total, from the ongoing AHIF and ascribe it to the, um, to take the necessary steps to, to reach Ms. Garvey's proposal on board salaries. Thank you. That. All right, so let's move to uh, take the, and I'll just recommend that since there's always a little bit of play with um, this markup and the actual budget that we just make that around $30,000. Uh, sure. Okay, $30,000 reduced from AHIF and that's seconded by Ms. Garvey. Any further discussion? We can now move to a vote on that proposal. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? No. By a vote of four to one, that carries. Mr. Chair. Mr. DeFranti. Um, I know there'll be additional pieces. I just did want to kind of try to clarify the, uh, offer two thoughts on this. The step is essentially to go from 
it's, I think it's a relatively modest increase. This 62,000 covers all board salaries, and so it would be actually in the range of 12,000, I believe, per board member, which from 77 to 89,000, um, I think, uh, in the context of the inflation that we've seen, makes it, uh, I believe, is more reasonable. I also think the second point that I would like to make is, is just we have not discussed um, what we all agreed in the manager's recommendation in this round, which was that not only would we do collective bargaining, but we, we, there have been requests from uh, the employee groups that we work with through collective bargaining, bargaining, the unions, that we invest significantly more. And we are doing that in a couple of different areas, in a number of different areas, with 520,000 in addition. And then with our firefighters, we've also agreed to addition to make sure that uh, the request to get to step and grade uh, we start down that road. So I hope those are two pieces of context that are reasonable for me to share with colleagues and the, and the community. Thank you. All right, so uh, this leaves our little spreadsheet bottom line with 15,000 in one time and uh, $400 in ongoing, which especially the ongoing figure is, is nice to just have in there in case we made any minor math, math mistakes, um, but certainly we don't need to close it yet, Mr. Carantonis. Uh, there is a there is still a fifteen thousand um, dollar unallocated on on one time, correct? Correct. Uh, so this could be added to uh, the one time part of AHF in compensation for. So is that a, a motion? So, yes, it's a motion. All right, so moved, so seconded by Ms. Crystal. Any further, Mr. DeFerranti, conversation? All right, we'll move to a vote on that at $15,000 in AHIV one time. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? The ayes have it. All right, so that now leaves us with uh, balances of $4 in one-time funding <laughs> and 408 in ongoing. Okay, so our ability to have made math errors is significantly reduced, but I think it's okay. I think it's okay. Okay. Mr. Chair. Yes, sir. Um, I don't, in terms of order and process, um, this may be something that is, is, is out of order. I'll just be transparent, but I have had some conversations. We have the Climate Action Fund, and I've had some conversations following up, uh, which has, I believe, 235,000 left in it. And um, I had some conversations with Ms. Cowan, who has touched base with our AIR team, and uh, there are two pieces of that Climate Action Fund that um, I'd like to see if, if colleagues and you as chair find an order. One is there is space for additional electric vehicles, uh, and uh, there's also, which would, the estimate is that we could fit 100,000 in worth of electric vehicle charging stations. Um, and the other piece of it is um, a down payment to explore a green bank, which would be $50,000. Those are 
late to the dance, but they are in a separate bucket where, wherein we have funding. And because of the uh, recent data regarding climate, uh, I wanted to sort of put them forward and let you and colleagues and Ms. Cowan and Mr. Schwartz offer thoughts with respect to them. I don't think they need to be acted on today, but I did want to, I thought there was enough merit and I did try to do enough homework in a different pot of money that I wanted to surface those for your and, the, and colleagues and uh, the manager and, and Ms. Cowan's consideration. Thank you for that, Mr. DeFranti. Since the, those proposals, as I understand it, since they would be uh, directed uses of the Climate Action Fund, don't, do not affect this, this balancing exercise. So if we can table that for now until we can finish with this discussion and then we can engage the manager in a conversation about how to have conversations about the uh, utilization of that fund. Thank you. Okay, so we now have a uh, markup that is uh, at near balance. Are there any further puts and takes proposed to it? Which case we will consider a vote on the entirety. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Any opposed? The ayes have it. We can consider this the markup that staff will then perfect into all of the budget documents. For those keeping score at home, the board has not adjusted the proposed tax rate, which stays level at what it was this year. Uh, fees, as have been proposed throughout the budget process, are carried over, and the uh, budget changes that we have just discussed that are outlined on this spreadsheet from lines 30 to 84 are the sum total of the changes. That conversation is over. Now let's have some additional conversation on items that may be subject to further discussion, like what Mr. DeFerranti brought up, or budget guidance. Mr. Chair, one, yes. one second. Just because I know we have to tick and tie all those numbers, we'll go back and check to the extent that there's $4 and $408 left over. Yeah. Um, my sense from the board is that we would put that in AHIF correct. as a balancing mechanism once we figure out that the numbers are correct, which we're pretty confident they yeah. are, but we appreciate the flexibility. Absolutely. Thank you. And you got the head nods for that. We don't need to go through a formal vote on that. Okay. Other items? Ms. Crystal. Um, I have a few items I've been working on in guidance. Uh, I'm happy to introduce them all at once, all three, if you'd rather me uh, share the floor, I can do that as well. Um, let me speak first to uh, an area that I know colleagues have heard me talk about that, that indeed we voted on actually earlier this year, which is um, transitioning to a new way um, uh, of allocating dollars to community and human services nonprofits that better aligns with our stated goals, our adopted resolutions on racial equity, and our city goal of transparency and decision-making. Um, I will not rehash what I've brought before the board a number of times and colleagues, but I've um, so greatly appreciated your support for, but over the past, um, now more than two years, we have been working with community leaders to envision an alternative. We are, uh, I'm delighted to say, well underway uh, in working on that transition, in particular, um, thanks to really dedicated leadership from 
um, uh, core members of uh, the county manager's office, including our equity team, um, working with support from the United Way of the National Capital Area, working hard to envision a notice of funding available process which can invite the best ideas from our community and enlist members of our community who have lived experiences um, uh, of interacting with the types of, of community building services that our nonprofits propose um, to uh, deliver on. Um, and in order to uh, effectuate that, they'll be putting out a call for projects or a notice of funding available in the first quarter of 2024. Um, we will be convening that team of um, uh, uh, subject matter experts and community members, training them in racial equity as well as principles of grant making so that they can work on reviewing applications um, throughout the balance of this calendar year and into a little bit of the next and make recommendations to um, well, uh, uh, three-fifths of this board and two new members, when I say the board, um, around budget um, uh, decision-making for fiscal 2025. Um, the challenge of all of this is uh, that it falls in between budget processes. Um, and so I perhaps might have felt most comfortable making a pitch this year, I would have felt most comfortable making a pitch this year to set aside some funding so that when um, we go to the community with a notice of funding available, we are um, prepared to fulfill uh, that, that promise that we are making, that there is a certain amount of funding available and urging them to compete for it. Um, uh, that would, however, mean appropriating money in fiscal 24 that the board would then need to act to carry over at least into the first day of fiscal 25 when those awards will take effect. And in such a constrained budget, I understand it's a big ask indeed to, to try to put aside money that, that would not be spent um, until the following July. So um, I am going to uh, ask and <laughs> deeply urge colleagues to join me in giving guidance to the manager um, of uh, asking him in his fiscal 2025 budget to set aside an additional $1.5 million. Um, that would match the $1.5 million of existing funds. Those are monies that have been dispersed to um, nonprofits year after year in Arlington, and we are now urging those nonprofits to compete um, and put their best ideas forward uh, in order for us to, I think, really go to the community in good faith and say that we want your projects. It cannot simply be about dividing an existing pie with more competitors, um, but rather does need to create new resources so that we can encourage nonprofits to come forward with those ideas. And um, obviously, we want to be able to make good on that promise. If we say there is going to be, I hope, $3 million available, um, I, I think it's important for us to make some kind of commitment. And so I would ask us to take the somewhat unusual step um, of requesting that the manager or um, giving guidance to the manager to include an additional $1.5 million in his fiscal 2025 proposal. Generally, we would do that during November. The notice of funding available will go out before the November board meeting. Um, in fact, should go out the end of the summer. And again, I, I think it's really important if we're going to make that commitment to the community um, to, to have something to back it up. And so this guidance is how I propose to do it. I can pause there before talking about others. Sure, so we look forward to your writing that up and then as part of our normal process, we can um, have that ready for, for Saturday. I, indeed, All I right. know generally I know we've not shared guidance at the time of markup yeah. because it's very overwhelming. So um, possibly it would have been less overwhelming to see it on the screen than to listen to me uh, talk <laughs> at infinitum about it. Um, one other uh, um, piece of guidance that is speaking of ongoing conversations, um, we of course uh, adopted zoning ordinance amendments last month to effectuate um, uh, changes that, that would allow for the construction of new forms of housing in areas across 
Arlington County, uh, the underlying goal of, of that work and so much of what we do around housing in Arlington is to increase the number of households uh, who can afford a stake here in Arlington. Um, but as we found in the equity analysis, um, those zoning ordinance amendments, we believe, um, will certainly increase the supply of attainable housing, provide price points that uh, are not necessarily well-served by our market now, but won't necessarily get us to affordable housing. And with regard to ownership, our zoning ordinance defines affordability um, on ownership product as affordable to those making 80% or less of the area median income. Um, I think in order to get there, especially with new EHO product over time, hopefully uh, EHO product will, will, will age and become more affordable, but with new EHO project, that's gonna take some support um, from us in the terms of financial support. Um, as I've spoken with colleagues, I think offline, I've had some conversations um, with nonprofit and some with for-profit developers about what it might take um, to get um, uh, missing middle type housing forms built and committed, uh, preferably through dedication to the Virginia Land Trust um, or possibly through other uh, um, uh, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm having a word-finding issue right now. Um, covenants, thank you, through other commitments in the covenants of those homes to affordability um, in exchange for some capital. So what I am going to bring forward uh, with written guidance is the consideration that we direct the county manager um, to ask staff to bring us as part of the findings of the home ownership study ongoing now, which are coming by December 2023, um, recommendations about possible program guidelines and implementation to uh, have an affordable EHO home ownership pilot program to support the creation of EHO type product affordable to those making 80% or less of the area median income. Um, and to, to um, suggest that the AHIF, I have confirmed with our county attorney's office, um, this is, would be an eligible use of AHIF dollars. Um, I think as our chair referenced conceptually, probably about a million five um, might be enough to support a couple of these projects throughout the county, which I, I think we would all really consider a, a great success in the first year or two. Um, uh, post-ordinance amendment adoption, um, but to defer the specifics on the amounts um, uh, to the the, uh, the recommendations of staff after the home ownership study. So that will be another set of guidance um, I will propose. And then the final thing, um, just wanted to note, and, and our chair mentioned this quickly, um, I think we're all supportive of including um, the, the FTE and the funding for DHS backbone, um, which is to say policy coordinators, um, uh, a policy coordinator role. Um, we have heard uh, calls in the community to have a dedicated child care czar. Um, obviously, this is an issue that is incredibly important to me, and I associate myself with those in our community. Um, and I think those in our staff would probably agree that we have great plans. We just need um, some support in helping effectuate them, um, uh, especially with a focus on child care that is affordable to our lowest income neighbors. Um, I strongly agree with that. However, I think uh, how we work is perhaps more important than what we work on. And the extent the child care initiative was a success, or you've seen other successful initiatives, it is because there's been staff who are able to work um, across sectors and across departments within the county, not because there is necessarily uh, an individual assigned to tackle a particular need. And I am, in fact, of the perspective that having that type of siloing um, is the opposite of integrating uh, the needs, since, again, we do know that the, the issues like childcare, hunger, affordable housing are so interrelated. And so I think it's really important for us to signal our intent that that backbone staff should spend their first uh, couple of years 
working on the child care initiative and particularly affordable child care. Um, I think that is a need that, that we've heard across the community and I believe all board members share. But I, but I do want us to be clear that that is not the alpha and omega of this individual's job. Um, and as uh, that, that work continues, um, there will be new uh, crises or needs that arise in our community that require um, savvy coordination, quarterbacking, project management, um, and coalition building to make sure that we really do have an integrated response. So um, thank you in advance, Ms. Cowan, I know has been working uh, with me and will be working with me on some guidance um, about uh, our expectations for that position and that childcare will be their first focus, but not their sole focus over Terrific. time. So we'll expect three uh, blurbs of guidance from you on the uh, child, on the like nonprofit. I'll keep them to less than a page. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the nonprofit funding uh, NOFA process, EHO is part of the home ownership study and the DHSFT. Any other uh, areas of guidance that you all are working on, Mr. DeFerranti? Um, it's a question. Well, first, I just want to thank Ms. Crystal for the work in all three areas. Uh, I know you have spent a lot of time working on each of these, and um, as you indicated, there would have been, might have been another first thought. And so I just want to thank you for channeling and focusing the work into the guidance, and uh, I'll be supportive. Um, um, the, the question has come up because of the addition of the, uh, we want to try and address the needs of our teenagers. And um, I was thinking about some guidance um, along those lines. Uh, I don't know that with 95,000, um, we necessarily need that. Um, I think that I, I don't have extensive policy thoughts on it, um, but I did want to at least suggest speak briefly to say that I support this area. There's been a number of emails today on this subject and over the last couple of days, and uh, I may forward those for consideration but not put them into the final, into final guidance form. Thanks. Thank you. Ms. Garvey. Yeah, I had a question, and actually, apologies. It's, it's for the manager, and apologies. I meant to bring this up last time we, we talked, and it, it's sort of a, a general um, thought. I know we're still working on moving to a step system with our police. Um, and I think there's some anxiety to have some commitment, and I think all of our intentions are there. Would it make sense to put something in the guidance to sort of show that commitment? So as to the board is, uh, in December, you passed a good faith resolution to support the uh, collective bargaining decisions that were made through the collective bargaining process. And today in the markup, you've added in sufficient funding for fire to move to a grade and step system, uh, which was the guidance I got from you back in December, and also for police to move to a grade and step system. The question, and what I would suggest is language saying, reaffirming what you did in December, the integrity of those awards. I'm not gonna foreclose the option that when I come back in the 25 budget, that I, it, at that time it may be appropriate to seek additional funds, but. I would say for right now, it's really a choice between reaffirming the three-year commitment that you made in December and then addressing that with the new budget as opposed to saying, when it comes to fiscal 25, add more money. Are you following? I am sort of, yes, I am following um, fine. I, I, you know, I just, I'd like, I think we're all trying to get to the same place and I, anything we can do to kind of broadcast that. So if you got any sort of suggested language that might be helpful that would uh, come communicate that. 
appreciate it. And the manager and I were planning on working on that, Ms. Garvey, so oh, yeah, well, well questioned. You. So okay. you shall hopefully see something that speaks to what the manager just spoke to. Mr. Karen Tonis. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, first of all, thank you for all the work that went into bring, you know, building together this, uh, this draft and uh, getting this uh, budget to, to, the, to these outcomes. I really appreciate the effort that was uh, invested in uh, uh, supporting AHEF and bringing AHEF to the, you know, making it be responsible, responsive to the, to the need uh, that still exists. I, I, it is true that this is uh, still a little bit less than last year. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, this is uh, what we can afford at this moment, and we have to look at, uh, at to, into the future to uh, support the fund uh, the, the, in the most robust way we can. Uh, what Ms. Crystal added uh, is uh, really a challenge for AFHEF. I believe that's the right challenge for AFHEF, and it just under, under, underscores the, the importance of focusing on this. So I think that the, um, uh, the guidance has to... Uh, reflect both things. First, how we support uh, the, the current goals of AHEF and how we carefully uh, craft uh, new and expanded goals for AHEF uh, as the, um, as the um, eligibility of projects and uh, you know, the competitiveness of projects uh, will, be of, of an, uh, will be an issue as we go forward. Um, and the second, uh, and the second, uh, um, uh, the second ranked, uh, I think that um, the, um, the additional focus on uh, uh, the behavioral health and then and uh, uh, and the addition of uh, DPR programs for teens is uh, has been an, a significant uh, has been a source of significant comments that we got. Um, during the pandemic, we, uh, these, these programs have suffered a lot, and I believe that the pandemic has just redefined what this program, how we have to think about these programs. Um, and uh, that means that we probably have to, you know, as you already have been doing, you're, you're asking experts, you're looking what other jurisdictions with, with you know, good records are doing. I really applaud that. This is a good, good place to, uh, to, uh, to start. Uh, our down payment, I have no, no doubts about that, is, uh, is is little, it's nothing uh, almost, uh, com compared to what I, I perceive every day to be the need uh, there. And I do think that the, um, uh, the environment uh, and the challenges that we have through the opioid epidemic, the fact that we have to reach out to more, to more uh, students, more constituencies uh, in a multilingual, multicultural, you know, more diverse space, uh, all these challenges are, are accruing. And therefore, we need to uh, focus on more robust programs in delivery here. Um, I uh, want to say for myself that um, uh, I struggled a lot with uh, issues that, um, uh, for example, with the staffing for the Nature Center, other things, the DPR, uh, you know, and people who have testified here I cared a lot about. I uh, still continue to think that we have to. Uh, I will try to bring in uh, guidance to uh, keep our focus alive and, uh, and, and specific about uh, uh, keeping these facilities uh, in the best possible place so that they continue to provide service. Um, uh, I see that uh, uh, budget-wise we couldn't do 
uh, as much as would, I would have liked to do, uh, but I think that this is a, an ongoing challenge and we have to keep uh, our focus alive on this. And finally, uh, Mr. Differenti my, um, uh, uh, mentioned already issues of uh, enhancing our environmental uh, activities of uh, being more focused on uh, uh, developing uh, new and better programs, implementing better. I think there is a lot of uh, uh, inertia, or I should say, a lot of momentum actually uh, uh, going on. The AIR program for me uh, really deserves uh, uh, even more support, and part of that is that we are strengthening our, also the. the the positions at the county managers level that will uh, bring in this whole of government approach to things where everybody will have a role in this policy deployment. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Garvey. Yeah. All right. This, this is not exactly guidance. This is now my sum up. Is that okay to do now? Let's make sure we get all the guidance. Okay. I'm just checking. First. Checking. No more. No more guidance. The question is about when or how I might follow up on the climate thing. We'll come to that okay. after we dispense with the Thank budget. You. All right. So the four pieces, just want to make sure we've captured it all, are Ms. Crystal's three plus also how the what the county board expects in terms of the manager's approach to fulfilling our collective bargaining agreements uh, that have both been negotiated and that are going through negotiation. Anything else? Those four, going once, going twice, sold. That'll be it. Four pieces of guidance that we'll have for you, Ms. Crystal. I know you have a, a lot and these are weighty, but if you could aim to uh, circulate those by Thursday close of business, I think we'll be in good shape. Great. Thank you. Now, you all want to talk about other stuff. Ms. Garvey. It's related. <laughs> um, just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, the, the Board of Equalization stipends, which was a very small amount, 20,000, um, we're, we're trying to recruit for the Board of, uh, of Equalization, and I assume if it, we really need that, those funds, we will find them somewhere because it's, it's de minimis in some ways. Um, Nature Center staffing continues to be a disappointment to me that we do not do that and keep our Nature Centers open. Um, however, I'm, uh, I think as we do more work on uh, mental health, the need for climate education, the need for after-school activities. I think a lot of it may come down to, boy, if we keep our nature centers open, we could help people's mental health. We could give young people a good place to go. Um, and we could also help educate our population about what they can do for the, for the climate, um, for the planet. So I'm, anyway, I, I haven't dropped the issue, but I think it will come up in some other ways because it, it fills so many of a so many of the needs that we have, which is part of the reason I keep sort of supporting it, but I think it will come around so I don't give up. Um, and as my colleagues know, I, I recently um, kind of realized how um, much the climate, if you will, in our jail needs to be improved with paint and lights. It's, it's very grim in there. I also, with our last finally kind of came to with the, actually the manager made a comment that really clicked with me, which is our jails are mental health hospitals in essence. That's really what's happening in them. And I think we need to start thinking of them in that way. So um, moving forward, I think we need to do more of that. And I do think um, much improved lighting and paint. I mean, if you're not depressed before you go in, you are depressed. Oh my, I thought I'd turned off my phone, apologies. 
Um, if you're not depressed when you go in, you will be if you've been there for a while. And it's not because of the people there. It's just it's just simply gray and grim and bad lighting. Um, I think with closeout, perhaps we can do something with that. And obviously, it was rel relatively new, and it's just really something more for our sheriff to come forward with um, and make recommendations with. So hopefully, we can come forward with something better and perhaps for closeout, because that is something I think we need to do soon if we're um, really wanting to address the mental health crisis of the people who are in our jails. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. DeFranti. Um, I guess I wanted to just uh, check with Ms. Cowan with, and Mr. Mr. Manager, Mr. Schwartz, regarding the Climate Action Fund and those two amounts that I mentioned. Right. Actually, I think it would be appropriate. I'm going to ask Michelle to give you an update because we've had conversations. Not all the fund has been allocated, and we have some suggestions after conversations with you. Sure. So the... Um the fund was seeded, capitalized, if you will, in last year's budget for a million dollars. Um, and we said we would come back during this budget process with our initial set of proposed recommendations. So if you recall, I'd be happy to send this out to you again during the DES operating budget work session and the capital work session, we kind of laid out what we were thinking, which was a total allocation of around 765,000. 350 of that was for some additional EV charging stations and the associated infrastructure, electrical engineering, at public-facing facilities, um, and that would increase our um, and I say community centers we identified four in Library Central, Barcroft, um, Cordes Plaza here, Bosman area, um, I believe Fairlington. Um, the other allocation of around 200000 was for, and coupled with, with PAYGO funding, was for evaluation. You heard, I think, an interesting presentation from DES on our new tool for decarbonization facilities. Mm -hmm. So using part of that fund to advance more studies and then the investments in some of our facilities as we're looking at HVAC replacements. And then the other allocation was for $200,000 for CCA study that we've begun to work on with Fairfax. So that leaves about a hundred and whatever, 65,000. <laughs> I'm sorry, my math is really bad. Um, so what Mr. DeFranti and I talked about that you know, an actionable item is certainly additional $100,000 to EV charging stations. We could put in another four to six on top of that at, at TBD locations. Um, but we think that we can move on that this fiscal year with completion in early 25. And then I know that you all have expressed interest in further evaluation of a regional green bank approach, which we've, Fairfax um, originally wanted to go on their own. I think they've backed off and now looking at a more regional approach. So our staff have been working with their staff. We've heard different things. We both have heard, are they starting in summer? Is it going to be fall? Like, our, um, Demetra and her staff have been talking to them, like, as recently as last week. So we thought as an option to put in, you know, 50000 to make sure we have the seed money ready to go when they're ready to go. We certainly know that that would be, would likely require more money, but we could address then as part of next year's budget or once we get scope and plans finalized. Um, those funds have been appropriated, so I, honestly, I think it could just be handled via guidance, right? And this is how we would direct that balance. And then whatever's left, you know, we could talk through again for next year and what we would do with it. I mean, does that make sense? Does that cover it, Mr. DeFerranti? Sure, of? sure. Uh, I'd, um, I'm happy to write very brief guidance. It might be shorter than the three pieces of guidance that Ms. Crystal does, but um, certainly I think that uh, I've tried to do the homework on this, and, and uh, there are specific individuals who come forward, and we won't specify which, where the electric vehicles, but they're different parts of our community that have come forward and want to make sure there's sufficient capacity. And then uh, I think the, the Green Bank, I've tried to pursue it 
sufficiently and keep the dollar amount small so that the seed funding would be within the manager's purview to figure out what's appropriate to spend. But at least it keeps us moving forward in light of the continued um, painful statistics and painful analysis that we see. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. DeFranti. Uh, you know, um, colleagues, I'd love to get your guidance to weigh in before we direct Mr. DeFranti for guidance. I mean, what I heard from both what you're asking and what Ms. Cowan outlined is exactly what we want this fund to do to sort of be available to work quickly to take advantage of real opportunities. And so I think you can actually accomplish the same goals by leaving it undirected at this point, by leaving the space available so that if at some point, if they just think that 100,000 for the bank is, is better throughout the course of the year and fewer charging stations, I'd love for them to have that flexibility a little bit than uh, programming every last dollar, but leave it up to discussion. I'll Ms. Garvey. I got my light first. I absolutely ag agree with that. We'll see. And it could be that if we manage to do, um, in cooperation with Fairfax or some others, we can get maybe a lower cost for putting in the station. Who knows? I, I think giving the flexibility is where we ought to go. So thank you. Hopefully, Mr. DeFranti agrees. Mr. Karen Tonis. Um, Setting up a green bank is not an easy thing, and it's really, you know, we see that when a very big jurisdiction tries to move on that. So uh, uh, this $100,000 would be uh, probably needed to be uh, specifically available to evaluate how we can uh, dock in into this effort and, you know, how the, the green bank would be uh, designed and you know, compartmentalized in order to, to serve different uh, constituencies across the region. Uh, in a collaborative uh, system. Um, so uh, I, while I agree that, uh, you know, this is already available money and there is a thinking behind that, uh, directing it and making sure that, uh, you know, this may, is, is, is kept as a, as a goal uh, to, to dedicate uh, some effort on, on uh, uh, you know, defining and configuring a, a our own you know pathway to a green bank collaboration. I think that this is still uh, worthy of uh, mentioning that in guidance. Thank Mr. You. Chair, Mr. DeFranti, I think you make, um, I'm happy to try to fashion uh, two sentences that seek to address your concern. I think part of me feels as though the the 100,000 in electric vehicles is an operational decision that if there's space, um, I'm sort of slightly more inclined to be flexible and defer on that. But the Green Bank, at least I'd want to, I'm attracted to a presumption to move forward on that. And I recognize that there could be concerns. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's my take. I could also say right in the guidance and work with Ms. Cowan to do it to say, Either of these two, um, unless you know the the manager sh should should see other priorities that that um, accelerated. I don't know that that fully addresses your astute point, but uh, I guess it's it's this is born of an urgency with respect to the green bank in particular, and a collaborative piece that uh, and also um, conversations with with um, with our community as well that leads me on the green bank to be more inclined to try to sort of put a bit of a presumption without a binding piece to that, so. 
if I, if I could just add one thing. I want, want everybody to understand, including those people who are very vigorous advocates for the Green Bank. I know members of this board have talked to their colleagues in Fairfax. I've talked with my colleague in Fairfax several times. I know Ms. McBride has talked with her colleagues in Fairfax. And a lot of people in our C2E2 community have talked with people in Fairfax. Fairfax is fully on notice that we want to partner with them. <laughs> Just one thought before we Ms. Crystal, yes. This is not a hill on which I need to die, and I appreciate that this is an attractive idea to some of our colleagues, so I, I think that's fine. I, I guess I would just say um, one of the reasons I think we're all so delighted to have Mr. Ayers on board and to have that office fully functional is to be able to bring um, not just the political urgency, but the real analytical sense of where is the most bang for our buck. Uh, and I really see this fund as one of his key tools to do it. Um, I, I'm not certain that it's always the case that the thing that is um, sexiest or most exciting to us or generating the most attention even among our very smart advocacy community is the thing that will most uh, deliver on reaching our goals and I am excited to now have somebody to, to advise us on that. So um, again, it's not a hill on which I need to die and Mr. Frindy, I think you, you've rather clearly kind of suggested that the flexibility would be there if needed but um, uh, I, I think keeping that fund flexible to be able to show real movement, right? Because that's why we created it. There's a desire on the part of our community, on the part of this board, to, to say that we are demonstrating a level of action that is commensurate with the urgency uh, of the threat of greenhouse gas emissions. And so, um, you know, to, to potentially tie down some of those dollars that are supposed to be able to help us demonstrate near-term success to a big idea, a big complicated idea that may take quite a bit of time to get off the ground. I, I just wonder if we're working at cross purposes with our own desires um, in setting up that fund last budget cycle. So consider that, again, grist for the mill. Um, um, it's not a, you know, so deeply held of a position that I wouldn't be supportive of a direction colleagues wanted to head if it differed from it, but wanted to at least raise that consideration. Thank you. So is your direction clear? <laughs> I'm, I'm flexible. I don't want us to lose. We have, we have added a full climate position, which is not something we expected and a significant victory that I don't want advocates to lose. Um, and, uh, the only other, I'm okay with, with not writing guidance because it, it would feel like I was turning in circles and writing legalese. Um, but I think the other point that I would just make is, is uh, the urgency of, of expenditure. This is, I don't want to, I want us to, and Bill, uh, Mr. Egger can, can do this. I won't write guidance, but it, it, you know, I think that we've aired the discussion and if there's a green bank opportunity that makes sense, we'll jump on it. And if there are additional electric vehicles, it makes sense. Vehicle charging stations, it makes sense. We'll jump on that too. Thank you for the discussion. Thank you. Thank you for bringing it up for sure. Anything else for the good of our order today? One, one thing I did want to mention, we will, as the board has a 72-hour rule on posting board reports, but this has always been an ex exception granted to us. Yes. Given with this work session, we will have the board reports posted as quickly as they're completed, hopefully by Thursday. Um, so if the public is dying to read the resolution, um, our team is going to be at work as soon as we leave here. You are free to uh, dispense withholding yourself to that policy, given that 
We amply, amply engage our public in understanding our budget through these myriad work sessions, including this one. So I believe the actual written material just codifies everything that we have discussed. So you are free of that obligation. Um, so I think that seeing no other lights, I think that takes us to the end of our business today. For our public, the board will adopt the budget, calendar year tax rates, fee changes, and code amendments at our Saturday meeting on April 22nd. And as a reminder to everyone, we have had our public hearings on both the budget and the tax rate hearing. So we will, we will not be hearing speakers on this item and the discussion will be entirely with the board. Thank you everyone. Thank you very much, Ms. Meredith, Mr. Stevenson, Ms. Hughes, and everyone who worked on putting together the budget in addition to of course our manager and assistant and deputy county manager. We do appreciate it. Our FY24 budget season is almost done.
is proudly produced by the Virginia Farm Bureau Federation. Since 1926, Farm Bureau has been working to preserve Virginia farms and our rural heritage. Visit our website at VAFB.com. Hello everyone and welcome to Real Virginia, a show about Virginia agriculture and the people who produce the wonderful local products we enjoy. Brought to you by the Virginia Farm Bureau. Some Virginia school children are learning to garden without soil. We have tips to protect your plants from early spring freezes. And we'll learn more about how weather conditions affect almost everything on the farm. Home will always be Virginia, between the Blue Ridge and Chesapeake Bay. Welcome back to Real Virginia, everyone. We're coming to you this week from Carlton and Calhoun Farm in King and Queen County. School-aged children are learning how easy and fun it can be to grow food and other plants with hydroponic units. Burke Moeller reports on a growing trend in Virginia classrooms. Students at two Western Virginia schools are the latest to dip into raising their own food in a water-based environment. Fourth graders at Virginia Heights Elementary School in Roanoke received a hydroponics kit recently from Virginia's Agriculture in the Classroom program to celebrate the program's 30th anniversary. The kit, plus a related curriculum and free lesson plans, are worth about $1,000, and educators are already making plans for how to use it. We are going to first start with something that's kind of easy for them so they can see it and see it quickly. So we're going to start probably with lettuce so they can watch it grow from seedling on up. And then later on we'll venture onto something that has flowers. But first, kids get to unpack the kit and put it together. Ag in the Classroom Executive Director Tammy Maxey says that's another learning opportunity. The first activity is for the students to understand following directions and assembling a task. This allows certain students to really thrive, those who are mechanically inclined, really thrive on putting that unit together for the first time. And then after they put it together, they have to learn how it functions. It functions with water and nutrients rather than soil and then they begin to plant their first crop. Hydroponic gardens use water to supply the nutrients plants need. They're also not as messy as working with soil, and when elementary and middle school students are involved, that can be a big plus for educators. Hydroponics can be an important option in urban schools where there may not be enough land to plant a traditional garden. Even though water is the primary ingredient in hydroponic gardens, the systems actually use less water than they would if they were growing plants in soil. This method has even been used to grow plants in space. This is an example of the future of agriculture as more, more agricultural businesses are looking for ways to grow things on smaller spaces of land. So if you're using something that you're putting on a rooftop, something that you're using in a greenhouse, that again you have a little bit more confined space that then you're going to continue to grow that plant and the students are learning the beginnings of those skills some of the students will take those skills and it will become something that interests them in a career other it will just interest them in becoming a home gardener when assembled the hydroponics kit should look something like this at benjamin franklin middle school in franklin county jennifer hatch used her examples of hydroponics in education 
to win the 2023 Virginia Agriculture in the Classroom Teacher of the Year Award. Hatch's seventh grade math students learned how to take what they've learned from her and make something grow. Everything we do is math, from the germinating of the seeds to the projective growth to comparative of the growth. You can put that on like a scatter plot to see, you know, does it correlate or not. We've done all sorts of, we've obviously measured, we cooked, so we had to change and adjust the recipes. We um, have to check, we have to check the pH levels and we have to make adjustments. The Ag in the Classroom program has helped meet teachers' needs by providing plenty of online resources at va.agclassroom.org. There's also a Virginia Ag in the Classroom Facebook page and a Virginia Ag in the Classroom YouTube channel that features virtual field trips. Children can go on these trips with their families or their teachers or by themselves and learn how agriculture impacts their lives. The lessons they learn in the classroom or on field trips can also be applied at home. I learned about that you can grow plants in water using a solar light that's plugged into the wall and I learned that you can do this at home too and she taught us with a book how we can do it at home and we can learn by ourselves and she gave us a book that has all the stuff that we have to put in it and and there's like a week so there's stuff that sucks up the water and it get, the roots go down through it and that's how the water gets up into the plant. For one student, the opportunity to learn with Miss Hatch has been the reason to come to school. I don't really like school. My favorite subject is math, but normally I don't like to come to school to do it. But now I'm happy to be able to come to school to want to go to her class. And I wish I could, we were in elementary school and she was my teacher, and so I could just stay with her the whole day instead. Hearing you say that, Nick, is the greatest award. It's better than the plaque. Hearing that you guys want to come to school and you want to learn and that you listen and that you're taking what we're saying and growing with it, that's, to me, better than this award. So your words and the, what you guys have said actually mean more to me than that banner and piece of wood. For three decades, Ag in the Classroom programs have been working to put students in a position to learn where their food comes from and how it's made, and perhaps plant a seed for some who may want to pursue agriculture when they get older. In Rocky Mount, Virginia, I'm Burke Muller reporting. <music>
Thank you to the farmers who provide for us every day. Virginia Farm Bureau is proud to serve our members, their families, and to give back to our local communities. That's the Farm Bureau way. It's not unusual to have early spring freezes in Virginia. Mark Viette shows us how to protect tender plants from frost damage in the garden. Probably the thing that affects the plants or our garden plants or container plants the most is the great fluctuations in temperature. Could be you've got warm weather, then really cold weather, warm weather, and really cold weather. There are some things that you can do to help protect your plants, especially tender plants, uh, plants that uh, might grow in more tropical areas. But here is a plant, guess what? I forgot to protect this plant. And as you see, it's dead now. It completely froze. So one of the things that you can do is cover some of your plants. When you cover the plants, that sort of moderates the temperature. Now remember, uh, heat rises. So in some cases, when you cover your plants, you might need to use crates like I've got right here. So when the cloth or whatever you're using to protect your plants, it's up above the plants and the heat rises. And so what I'm doing here, one of my favorite plants is the salvia black and blue. It'll do great in Richmond, Virginia Beach, and some of your warmer areas. But in the Shenandoah Valley, up and down the Appalachians, all the way to York, Pennsylvania, it may freeze. So what I do is I take, and this is a special heavy cloth, and I cover this. Now, ideally, you're going to want to do this maybe the end of December before real cold weather sets in. And then you're going to want to take this off after the threat of freezes, which might be mid-April or some, somewhere along that time. Let's go take a look at how to protect some flowering plants from frosts and freezes. There are some simple ways to protect some of your plants that may come into bloom when we have warm weather or early flowering things like flowering almonds or you might have a dwarf peach that needs protection when we're going to get cold or freezing temperatures. Just to show you here, this is jasmine and some of these flowers froze, you can see right here, and this is what it normally looks like. If you're going to get a real cold spell, you can protect these things. It's always good to have space above what I'm going to put as protection for this jasmine. And it's great to have old sheets. Sometimes it takes two people. But what you're going to do is stretch sheets above and it's always great to have maybe king-size sheets 
but again, you want to have some space above what you're dealing with. And sometimes I even will find inexpensive quilts. You can go to some of these uh, salvage places and get these quilts, and that's great to cover your plants. Now, if it's going to get real cold, and let's say you've got a, a dwarf peach tree, one thing that you can do, and always make sure you use outdoor cords, everything that's rated for the outdoors, but you can go ahead and put a lamp, and you got to use an incandescent bulb, not the new LED bulbs. These are the ones that give off heat. And so I'm going to put this in here, and it's going to heat up this whole area and help protect your plants. So it's a simple way. You can also do this with your container plants. And again, cover them, and you can put a light bulb if need be, and it'll help your plants and protect them from freezing or uh, and allow them to flower maybe in a couple weeks. I'm Mark Viette. Join me next time in the garden. For more garden tips, go to inthegardenradio.com. Coming up on Heart of the Home, candied bacon ice cream. We hope you'll stay with us. Our cow, she walks into the barn and she gets milked. Milk's taken from her and put through a uh, chiller. And that milk's taken from body temperature of a cow, which is about 102 and a half, and dropped to 35 degrees and put straight onto a tractor trailer. And it goes straight to the plant the next day. So most of the milk that's sitting on your store shelves is probably less than 48 hours old. And that's, that's a pretty good testament to how, how efficient we are. National Ice Cream Month isn't until July, but any time is a good time for this dairy treat. Chef Tammy Brawley shares a recipe for a homemade candied bacon ice cream from the heart of the home. Hi, I'm Chef Tammy Brawley from the Green Kitchen. Welcome to Heart of the Home. Today I'm going to show you how to use some of uh, Virginia's finest pork products. And yes, we are going to incorporate it into some delicious ice cream. We've got some bacon strips laying on an aluminum foil sheet tray and my oven has been preheated to 400 degrees. I'm going to take a little bit of brown sugar. You can use dark or light, it doesn't really matter. You just want to sprinkle a little brown sugar on each strip. It needs to be in the oven for about 15 minutes or so total, but we're going to flip the bacon about halfway through that cooking time. Alright, so we're going to pop this in a 400 degree oven for about 8 minutes, then we're going to flip them and then they'll cook another 8 minutes. It's actually dark mainly because of the sugar. We're going to put the bacon off of the hot tray onto a rack to let it cool. It's also going to be crispier when you let it cook like this and get it a little bit more done, which is what you're looking for for this recipe. We have a small saucepan. We have our burner on just basically a warm. We're going to start out with a tablespoon and a half of butter. Now your recipe calls for adding um, salted butter. As a chef, most of us, if not all of us, do not use salted butter. So to that butter, I'm actually going to add just a small sprinkle of a smoked bacon sea salt. Just a little bit, not very much. 
The enhancement there being that it was smoked with bacon and we're going to put bacon in the ice cream and then it adds the salt nature that the recipe calls for. To the custard or to the butter mixture, I should say, excuse me, we're going to actually add six tablespoons of dark brown sugar. And we're going to go ahead and add half of the required amount of half and half. It's going to start thickening, but it's going to thicken even further when we add our egg yolks. Virginia is home to about 375 dairy farms. They are constantly working to give us some nice product. We definitely want to make sure we support them. A little warm. You don't want it to be too warm because we're getting ready to incorporate the egg yolks. We've got egg, egg yolks waiting on the side here. We're going to whisk those up. Now we're going to temper. Temper means bring the temperature of one thing up to the temperature of the other. So cold egg yolks and a hot cream is going to curdle the eggs. So you actually want to just pour a little bit into the egg yolks. Let that go back on your burner. Whisk up the egg yolks with a little bit of that cream mixture and you want to go back into the pot with it and then you have no danger of scrambling your egg. Whisk that up very well together. Now with this on a low here, it's going to start to really thicken up more, which is what we want. So while that is thickening, we're actually going to go ahead and add a little bit more cream to a measure. What's going to happen is we're going to add the egg mixture and the sugar to the remaining cream and then we're going to add a little bit of vanilla extract and um, a secret ingredient we'll call. So at this point I'm going to turn my heat off. I want to use a fine mesh strainer here. Now why in the world would I use a strainer? I love to tell people this. If you ever have a recipe that calls for straining, it's actually a very important step or that calls for straining with eggs. You know when you crack an egg or you um, separate an egg, you always have those little bits and pieces. You want to strain your mixtures to not have that in your final product. So we're going to pour it into the measure with the heavy cream on the, or the uh, half and half, excuse me, on the bottom there. And what's also happening at this point, in addition to straining, is we are actually cooling the mixture with that cold cream on the bottom there. And what's going to happen, you're about to see what I was talking about, the importance of straining, is what is left inside this strainer are those little cooked bits of egg that we don't want in our mixture. And now what we want is we want to whisk up the extra half and half and the egg and sugar mixture and the butter. And now we want to add about a half a teaspoon or so um, of vanilla extract. And you might have remember I said something about a secret ingredient. Well, Virginia is home also to some delicious liquors. And we have some Virginia rum here that we're going to add to our recipe. So now what you want to do is you want to chill this mixture and then when it's ready and nice and chilled we're going to come back and run it through a ice cream maker. So here we have our bacon. I had started chopping it. We're going to finish chopping it into bits and pieces here. We have our chilled ice cream base mixture and we're going to put the bacon into it and stir it up. 
We have this wonderful little Cuisinart ice cream maker here that we're going to use. The bowl itself does need to be kept in the freezer. We're going to turn that on as soon as we plug it in. We're going to stir in those bacon bits. And now we're going to pour it into the frozen ice cream bowl and let this ice cream maker do its trick, do its thing. And the churning is going to take about 20 to 30 minutes. We're going to turn that off. I'm going to check our thickness of it. At this point, it could be more of a soft serve, which is totally fine. It's actually very edible. I've already tasted it. But um, you could always let it thicken longer if you wanted the ice cream maker to go longer. And once you put it into a sealed container and in back into the freezer, tomorrow it will be perfectly firm. But we're going to go ahead, um, mainly because we're anxious to taste this, we're going to go ahead and put some in a cup there with an ice cream scoop. All right, and there you have it, candied bacon ice cream, another way to enjoy delicious Virginia pork. I'm Chef Tammy Brawley from The Green Kitchen. We hope you'll join us again on Heart of the Home. Recipes from the Heart of the Home can be found on the Virginia Farm Bureau website at vafb.com recipes, as well as on Chef Tammy Brawley's website at greenkitchenrichmond.com. Ice cream as we know it arrived in the New World in 1744. It was popular with the founding fathers. A New York merchant has records of George Washington spending $200 on ice cream during the summer of 1790. By 1851, ice cream manufacturing processes had improved to the point the dairy treat was affordable to almost everyone. Ice cream parlors came into and out of style over the next century. Today, most ice cream is consumed at home. Some dairy farmers in Virginia have tried to increase their profits by creating their own local lines of ice cream and other products. It's a pretty day in Virginia right now, but just a few days ago, we had a soaking rain. Weather information is interesting to all of us, but Barry Ridgway reports it's vital to Virginia farmers. There's an old saying, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Mark Twain may or may not have said it first, but for sure, following the weather, is important to just about everyone. For a child waiting for the school bus, a surfer ready to catch some waves, or a sunbather just hanging out at the pool, we all rely on the weather. But there's probably no one who needs reliable, accurate, local weather information like our farmers. It can be the difference between success and failure. It's really important to be able to provide local weather conditions because weather varies from field to field. We might get two inches of rain here, we might get five tenths at our other location and they're a mile apart. So that type of information is very critical to growers. It can't be generalized for a big region. It's very specific. It helps growers be able to make decisions on their crops. Dr. David Lanston, a plant pathologist and researcher with Virginia Tech's Tidewater Agricultural Research and Extension Center, says weather conditions can foster major crop diseases or pest problems. I tell growers or advise growers on the options that they have to manage diseases and nematodes. Leaf wetness, relative humidity, and the duration of wetness is really critical uh, for fungal pathogens to be able to infect and spread in the crops that they affect. 
Lifelong farmer Roger Calhoun of Carlton and Calhoun Farms grows corn, soybeans, and winter wheat. And as a weather enthusiast, he has collected weather data at his farm in King and Queen County, Virginia, for nearly 35 years. Well, it started all originally just curiosity, young fellow out of high school, curious about so many things. But it all started with a, just a simple little funnel gauge, started writing it down, and I just kept up with it. I've got 33 years of data now. I'm going back to tell you when it rained, how much it rained, snowed. Calhoun says annual rainfall totals in his area of Virginia have increased in recent decades from around 40 inches per year 33 years ago to almost 46 inches per year. He still uses that funnel gauge, but he's added a digital gauge to his weather gear. I kind of compared the two, which most times are very, very accurate, close, other than maybe with a thunderstorm where we get windblown rain. That tends to read a little low on the funnel gauge side of it. But as important as getting enough rain is, the timing of that rain is also critical. A lot of times the, the rain events that are good for one crop are not necessarily good for another. So we have, we might have rain events in June and July that might be great for corn, but those very rains could uh, impact the emergence of soybean seed that have just been planted in our late planted soybean crop so we could get reduced stands from that. Last year was dead on the money by my average numbers, but the bean yield got cut because it didn't rain in the latter part of August and the early part of September, and they, they couldn't quite finish out. Beans were small, they were lightweight, and uh, but the, the corn prior to that was one of the best corn years I've ever had. In addition to normal rainfall, Calhoun also records information about major weather events that have affected his farm and the surrounding area. Hurricane Isabel was one of the worst I'd ever seen in my lifetime with wind damage here locally. It was a Hurricane Floyd, I think, in 99. It rained 16.8 inches of rain in a 24-hour span. That's the most rain recorded in my 33 years of data in 24 hours. Hurricane Michael ended up costing me $80,000 in repairs to the damage underneath of the bridge to my farm driveway. As you can see, I've recorded a lot of events over the years. <laughs> Anybody has a question about when so-and-so so happened, that's, I can go back and tell them when it happened. <laughs> Climatologists prefer weather records from rural areas because average temperatures skew higher in urban centers due to all the concrete and asphalt. Calhoun's 33 years of data may have started as a hobby, but Lanston explains long weather records can help predict future growing seasons. Well, I think it would be very valuable in that location, but certainly if we had that weather data in, in several other local locations, it would be very variable. We could actually use that data uh, to make predictive models. Virginia Tech and other universities partnered to provide specific on-site weather conditions to growers in a number of ways. During the growing season, Virginia peanut growers can call a toll-free number for a specific forecast or check online. We deliver the forecast on the internet, on our peanut cotton infonet, so that's available daily. With the frost advisory, the peanut hotline tends to r ring a lot um, when growers are digging peanuts. There's a remote access weather station on each of the Virginia Agricultural Research and Extension Centers around the state. With the AREC WeatherStem phone app, anyone can access climate data like rainfall amounts and intensity, up-to-the-minute conditions, and five-day forecasts. Information like that can really make a difference to a farmer, whether or not they have decades of weather data like the Calhoun family. In King and Queen County, Virginia, this is Barry Ridgway reporting.
We're so glad you could join us this week to celebrate all the bounty Virginia has to offer. From the kitchen, to your home and garden, to our beautiful wide open spaces, we are proud to say that this is real Virginia. For everyone from the Virginia Farm Bureau, thanks for watching. Make it a great week. Chesapeake Bay, Atlantic to Appalachia, home in my heart always. Good evening and welcome to tonight's Missing Middle Information Session focused on planning for growth. I'm Christian Dorsey, Vice Chair of the County Board and pleased to be your host tonight. This is the last in a series of three information sessions that we've conducted. These sessions also represent one of the many ways for residents to engage with information about the Missing Middle Housing Study as the County Board deliberates potential zoning changes. For more opportunities and to learn about how previous input has been incorporated over the three previous years of the study, we encourage you to visit the project's webpage at arlingtonva.us. Now, localities around the region and country are exploring how to create more flexibility for expanded, expanded housing choices. And increasingly, states and now the federal government, led by the Council of Economic Advisors, are calling for greater housing production to address historic shortages in the housing market. The County Board's consideration of changes to our own zoning code reflects these national demands, but it must be implemented in a way that is consistent with our local values and needs. My colleagues and I are using these next few months to better understand the challenges and the opportunities associated not just with our status quo, but with the possible array of changes that are up for consideration. Now, the most important thing I must start with tonight is that 
this point in the process, the county board has not voted on nor scheduled consideration of any ordinance changes. Our staff is analyzing potential amendments to the zoning ordinance and will be doing so throughout the fall. And we will learn from both their work, our conversations with the community, and information sessions like this as we determine what, if any, policy decisions are made in the coming months. Before we launch into our session tonight focused on growth and planning for it, I'd like to provide some history and background on the Missing Middle Housing Study. In 2015, as part of the Affordable Housing Master Plan, the county adopted a policy to explore more housing options within our neighborhoods that currently only allow single household dwellings. To implement that policy, the board requested that the Missing Middle Housing Study be initiated in 2019. Now this is just an element of one of the six pillars under the Housing Arlington umbrella and explores if various housing types could potentially help Arlington's limited supply of housing, the choices and types of living arrangements that people would have, and the range of prices that housing is uh, available uh, in. Now, the Missing Middle Housing Study began with extensive research into our regional economic conditions, the history of housing and zoning in Arlington, and our existing land use policies. And over the past two years, the county staff, along with partners from the community, who included organizations and neighborhood associations and individuals, uh, all provided feedback, and that has shaped the scope of the recommendations and the course of the study that we have seen to date. Last year, the board asked staff to identify housing forms that if allowed in Arlington County, could possibly offer desired alternatives to the current predominant mode of five and six bedroom and perhaps more single household dwellings that are currently being built when older homes are torn down and that sell for prices that are out of reach for most households. The draft framework offered by staff is intended to offer insights about the possibilities. And we learned that if we were to expand the type of housing options that could potentially be built, the cost of these homes would vary based on a number of factors, including style, size, location, and market forces. Our hope for these information sessions is to continue to explore and learn about the different aspects of housing, zoning, and growth, and related policies and issues as we consider options that might expand the types of housing that are available at different price points uh, and that increase opportunities for home ownership that could help Arlingtonians of any age. Tonight's session is an opportunity for us to explore a topic in depth with our special guests and tonight's topic is planning for growth. <clears throat> How does Arlington plan to accommodate a growing population and specifically how do we deal with having enough space and seats for our students, sufficient infrastructure, emergency services, and ample parks and open space? What about the transportation options that are available to house and accommodate a growing population? And when the county staff, along with our advisory commissions and the county board, considers changes to the zoning ordinance uh, or a site plan, how do we actually reference and consult pre-existing plans and how are those updated when more people move into the county and when circumstances change. So 
before we get started, let me go ahead and introduce our guest tonight. I am excited to welcome Chuck Bean, who is the Executive Director of the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments and also an Arlington resident. We're also joined by Nora Palmatier, who is a longtime Arlington resident and one of our foremost resident environmental stewards. Welcome, Nora. We also have John Chadwick, who is the principal at the DLR Consulting Group, but he's known to many of you as the former Associate Assistant Superintendent of Facilities and Facilities uh, at Arlington Public Schools. And we're also joined by Ron Carley, who is currently an Assistant Professor at Old Dominion University, but is known to us all as a former County Manager in Arlington and also as a City Manager in Charlotte in North Carolina. Welcome, everyone. I'm so excited that you could be a part of this conversation. Uh, I couldn't imagine a better panel of individuals to discuss <laughs> this topic of growth, sincerely. Uh, so before we get into it, I would just like to provide each of you with an opportunity to tell us a bit about uh, yourself and what brings you to wanting to help our community work through this conversation about thinking about growth and thinking about the future and uh, I'll start off with Chuck. Yeah, Christian, great to be here with you all. Um, at the Council of Governments, we're a hub for regional collaboration throughout the metropolitan area, so <coughs> suburban Maryland and the district in Northern Virginia. We're also the federally designated metropolitan planning organization, and as the MPO for the region, we're focused on transportation planning, environmental planning, and as a hub for collaboration, we bring all the police chiefs, all the fire chiefs from throughout the region, Maybe for this discussion, uh, we bring all the housing directors together every month, all the planning directors to look at forecasting for jobs, population, and housing. Excellent. Thank you. And Nora, how about you? Well, I'm here for both personal reasons and for the trees. I mean, I've, my spouse and I live in a 75-year-old house, and we're 75 ourselves, and we're discussing which is going to go first, the structure of the house or our knees. <laughs> and we've looked at all the options of where do we move, how do we retrofit the house, and realized that some of the thoughts of the missing middle, if we could do a duplex in our house, we could make it accessible so that we could age in place and we could get my nephew and his family on the other side to provide that care that, you know, as we age that we're going to need. Also, I could get him to do all the heavy lifting and yard work. So that's the personal part of it. On the other side, I'm really interested in how could we change a lot of things that go on with lot coverage, setbacks, et cetera, to make any housing area more fit for trees and for the, the whole environmental issue? There's lots of ways that we could change what we've got now and make it better in the future. Thank you so much, Nora. And, and John? Welcome, welcome back to Arlington. Thank you. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to drive through the county and see some of the fruits of uh, your many great labors. Thank you. So, you know, after 10 years, Arlington kind of gets into your system. I, I, I was listening to Ron Carley uh, talk about that too. 
Um, and I really care about kids. That's why I do schools and why I care about schools. Um, so I'm happy to come back and give you some, uh, some benefit from my experience. But also, since I left Arlington working with the DLR group, I am working on new schools and uh, particularly on the intersection of uh, planning for large school districts, uh, along with energy and climate and how all those things come together. Uh, so always interested in what's going on in Arlington. Great, great. We look forward to that expertise coming through tonight. And Ron, over to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Ron is not in studio with the rest of us, but he is joining us. We're grateful joining us from Richmond, Virginia. So take it away, Ron. Thank you very much. Actually, I'm coming to you tonight uh, from Norfolk, Virginia, oh, my okay. home office. Uh, here where ODU is, but there's no telling where you'll find me from uh, one moment to another. I do regret that I cannot be there with you tonight. Uh, the studio that you're in actually was, uh, most of it, once my office in the late 1980s and early 1990s when I was Director of Human Services in Arlington. When I came in 1980, I uh, came and visited Arlington for the first time. In late 79, I'd moved to Washington to work for a member of Congress, which lasted one month, which was about 30 days too long. <laughs> it turns out I'm allergic to Congress, and Congress was allergic to me. And I found myself unemployed living in the district on unemployment uh, insurance from Alabama, about $75 a month less than my rental in uh, Washington. And so I was looking for a job came over to Arlington, and I've got to tell you, in 1980, it was not impressive. The main street was, was, was shabby, to say the least. Uh, both Wilson Boulevard and Columbia Pike, you had uh, lanes that changed on rush hour to get people in and out of the county as quickly as possible. Uh, the major shopping, of course, was Parkington. Uh, my mother had been a retail clerk at JCPenney's, and she said the JCPenney's at Parkinson was absolutely the worst JCPenney's she'd been in her life. I really didn't want to come to work for Arlington, but I needed a job. I took it, thought I'd be there for a couple of years and go somewhere else. I ended up staying in Arlington about six months shy of 30 years, uh, beginning as a budget analyst and leaving as county manager. And the reason I stayed is because once I got there, I learned what the vision was and what their plans were for Arlington, developed by brilliant people in the 1960s and 1970s and with subsequent leaders staying with it. And so I was there for the generation that saw Arlington become a place where most people wouldn't want to live to be a place today where everyone wants to live. Well, thank you very much, Ron. And it's useful for this conversation to uh, be reminded that uh, you know, growth uh, may be moderate or um, incremental, but change can be substantial, particularly when you're talking over generations. So uh, welcome you to this conversation. But to start off, Chuck, I'd like for you to just set the regional stage for a little bit, because um, we exist, Arlington, within a dynamic region, a dynamic region that is attractive to lots of people who want to come here. And I'd love for you to give us a sense of what are the regional factors influencing that growth and how Arlington really fits into the puzzle in terms of receiving a portion of that growth. Sure. Um, short answer, the factor is jobs. So jobs has driven the growth. Jobs drives population. And uh, population drives the need for housing. If I go back historically, uh, Arlington uh, doubled in size in the 30s 
doubled again in size in the 40s. I mention that now because uh, uh, I, I think it bears some examination. What patterns were set in that rapid growth between 1930 and 1950? Now, in the subsequent decades, Fairfax, Montgomery, Prince George's in the 50s and 60s, they all doubled and doubled again. That's where growth happened. We can kind of see a consistent ballpark 600,000 residents being added to the regional footprint almost every decade except for the 70s. Now we get to this last decade, 660,000 people were added between 2010 and 2020. Go back to my short answer, why? Because of jobs. Uh, so looking out over the next decade, we forecast an additional 400,000 jobs in our region. That drives uh, the, the demand for population and the need for housing. So we predict about 600,000 additional residents coming to our region over the next decade. The factor coming for jobs, the economic vibrancy of this region. Great, and so within that, Arlington is a place that is built, transit-oriented communities is a matter of, you know, past planning vision and current planning implementation is likely going to receive a, a, a fairly healthy share of jobs that would come to the region. Yeah, we, we talk about transit and we've analyzed the nodes of all the high, we call them high capacity transit station areas. Just 10% of the region's landmass, but they will expect to receive about 55% of all future jobs. So where there's high capacity transit, those are like high opportunity areas. So those jobs will need a place to sleep at night. Um, and that's the, that's the challenge our region is facing. Well, certainly we know that uh, when one of the more recent jobs centers uh, chose Arlington as a place to grow, Amazon, another factor that was not insignificant was the uh, quality and the investment in public education. So John, can you talk a little bit about the, the role of uh, schools and school facilities in a community's ability to grow and to attract uh, interest? Well, I, during my time in Arlington, I met a lot of young families, and many of those families had moved from D.C. or from somewhere else specifically for the schools. And I know that from what was going on at the time when that employer came to Arlington, that was a major consideration. Um, and I think you have to really look at, as you look at population growth, um, how much of that is school-aged children? So you might have a low, like you said, 1% or so over the last you know, 20 years. Well, there were times when it was 5 or 6% a year for school kids. So you really have to drill into those numbers and see who it is. So we had a major impact on the schools. And I, we, when we were chatting with Nora before, there's street after street in Arlington where people have, families have turned over or older people have moved out or on, and they've turned back to families with kids. Um, and it's just a pattern that keeps repeating because Arlington is a really nice place to live and a lot of people stay here for a long time. It's terrific. Now, I have lots of questions that I want to get through <laughs> with all of you, but also as part of these information sessions, we do provide an opportunity for people who are watching to submit questions. And I'd invite you to do so by uh, either calling or texting your questions to 571-348-3053. That number is at the bottom of your screen. We welcome you to get in, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to monopolize the floor for a little while longer <laughs> because, Nora, you know, in addition to the, the people who may want to come, whether it's because of, of jobs or um, who see it as a great place to bring a family because of schools, you know, communities 
all over deal with that level of, of dynamic, but part of what influences growth are people who are committed to staying here. And right. you have committed right. to Arlington long term. Yeah. Give us some of the, the reasons why you're committed to this community. I guess because I live in a fantastic neighborhood and have good neighbors is always, you know, what's happening to you super local is good. But also, I'm very interested and involved in the parks in our area and the natural systems. Um, since for the last 20 years, I've spent a lot of time volunteering in the parks, taking care of the trees, native habitat. And I find that the staff that I work with is very dedicated to that, too. So we go. And what is also interesting is I've served on a lot of these uh, commissions, like for the school, for uh, Cardinal and Fleet, and the Facilities Commission. What was it called? The Multi-Facilities? Uh, uh, the Community yeah, Facilities. facilities yeah. Right. And you find such a mix of people all willing to share their opinion, but they're all involved in how do we keep this sustainable? How do we keep it as a place that we want to live? And notice I didn't say keep it green, because green is not always sustainable. Mm, mm. I mean, ball fields that are compacted, <laughs> right. turf lawns that don't have any native plants in them, the shrubs that are just from China or somewhere else that don't feed insects or birds, that's not sustainable, but it's green. So there's a lot of people out there with my view working on this as well. Terrific. And, you know, Ron, we very much appreciate your personal story of what it was like as a young <laughs> professional uh, and what Arlington did or did not offer. And, of course, uh, you are certainly responsible for a lot of the uh, things that I think have attracted and retained mm -hmm. residents like Nora. Uh, but I'd you know, like to ask you, based on your experience as a county and a city manager, because for those of you who don't know, you know, we're talking about moderate growth in Arlington of between one and one and a half percent on an annual basis. But then you went and were city manager at a place that was growing a lot more dynamically than than that in Charlotte. So what are some of the things that a, a community uh, needs to do in order to effectively plan and manage the kind of population growth that's coming for whatever reason is driving it? Well, the planning part of it is really important and recognizing, as other speakers have said, that we operate in a system. It's not just about the land use plan, it's also about the sustainability plan, the education plan, the facilities plan, the historical preservation plan, the cultural arts plan, all of it working together to envision a community and society as a whole that people will want to live in. And part of that society needs to be a diverse society. This has been a key part of Arlington for a long time, and Arlington has gone through some new revelations about what it means to be a diverse community. It needs to be multicultural, it needs to be racially diverse, and the struggle that we've had for the last 20 years in particular is to be economically diverse. And that's where the issue of housing uh, becomes so critical. How do we get that diversity of uh, of housing opportunity that's affordable 
for the full range of jobs that we will have in Arlington. There are, not all are going to be 100, $100,000, $200,000 a year jobs. People have to people have to clean the Amazon offices. You know, people have to fill the daycare slots. People have to be physical therapists. We've got a whole lot of jobs that are never going to pay the kind of incomes necessary to buy a home of $600,000, a million dollars, million and a half dollars. I, I, would, has, I, would, uh, I would be frightful to look up to see how much the homes I owned in Arlington are worth <laughs> today. And, and so to do that, we've have to, we have to plan around the whole system. And that takes visionary people on the county board. It takes exceptional staff, and I will add to what some others have said, Arlington historically has had truly exceptional and dedicated staff. But what has made Arlington successful in its planning has been the continuity. There's not been dramatic shifts one way or another. Uh, the board has worked together, the staff has worked together, having the council manager plan of government so that uh, you, you're able to get that continuity and, be, and you're able to take the long-term view and not just the view for the next election. And I would say the single most important part for effective community planning, wherever it is, is engagement with the community. People, I think, have a hard time understanding today how radical the, the re-envisioning of Arlington was in the 1960s. In fact, I'm still surprised today how radical the re-envisioning of Columbia Pike was, even though I was directly involved with it. Mm -hmm. And those dramatic changes were possible because the people in the community were involved with it. It takes a lot of work. All these meetings you're having, you know, some people are saying, why are you having these? You're just going to do whatever you want to do in the end. Well, that's just not true. I can't tell you how many times I've sat at the dais in Arlington as county manager around some development plan or, or change in zoning and not knowing what the votes were until the votes were taken because board members didn't know how they were going to vote until they had the public hearings and listened to people. Engagement matters in Arlington. And, and I know there's a tendency to be cynical these days, uh, but people can have an impact if they will involve themselves. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, you, you all have hinted that the, you know, when you think about planning, it's, it's, it's should be self-evident, but bears repeating that this is not about today, um, and it's not even really about tomorrow. It's about some increment moving forward in the future. And so, Chuck, as you began the conversation telling us what the next 10 years look like, but planning on a regional level goes beyond just 10 years, right? Yeah, we uh, do forecasts for the next 25 years. And uh, I mentioned being the Metropolitan Planning Organization. In fact, that entity, uh, Transportation Planning Board, does a 25-year uh, transportation plan that's built on these forecasts of jobs, uh, housing, and population. You mentioned Amazon uh, a moment ago, and I'm remembering back to 2018 when our region had three sites on the shortlist for Amazon, 350 places, biggest economic development competition in history, when there were three places, one in Maryland, one in the district, and of course, uh, Virginia. Um, I thought, well, this, this is probably going to happen. Uh, we, need to, we need to get moving on this. And I think the impulse at that time was uh, congestion. What's this going to mean for transportation? Very congestion-focused. So we brought the director of the Seattle Department of Transportation to speak to our planners and to the COG board. And expecting him 
as director of transportation to talk about transportation. He did about 40% of the time. About 60% of the time he focused on housing, that that was the key. And that's really gotten our thinking along with some scenario planning. If we want better transportation outcomes, focus on housing. Build the housing closer to these job opportunities. Otherwise, a lot of folks are facing two-hour commutes, and that's no good for transportation. It's no good for sustainability and for quality of life. So more housing closer to the jobs has been something we really focused on in the last three years. Mm. And, and Nora, you know, your personal story of what makes you interested in perhaps a duplex, the kind of um, circumstance that allows for you to age in the community that right. you've called home to maybe invite uh, family members to share in uh, some of the opportunities for home ownership. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a different way of thinking than has been the way sort of communities have developed over the last 25 years or so. You know, I, don't know. I, I, I shouldn't say that. It's, <laughs> Immigrants it's not, always have. <laughs> right. And, and let's talk about that because right. we're really thinking about the mm -hmm. future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you think that the kinds of uh, circumstances that you desire are kind of going to be a little bit more common than I perhaps they've think been. I so. Yeah. Let me first add on what Chuck was saying. I recently visited my niece in Seattle, and she and her partner just purchased a duplex, half of a house, and loved the, the older family next door. And it turns out that that particular area of North Seattle is zoned multifamily housing only. Mm. And right across the street is single family homes. And we did a lot of walking between them. And of course, I was looking for the trees. And I was <laughs> pleased that there they had managed to have the same tree coverage in both places. So that, that made me feel, oh, I could have my nephew on the other side. Well, part of my thinking is that my niece-in-law is an immigrant, and it's very traditional in her culture that she lived with her grandmother and parents and aunts and uncles. And so whenever we were talking, I was thinking, well, you know, this might work. And I think, and it used to be the old way of doing it, you know, back in the 1900s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I think it is going to happen. And since I've been talking with other friends my age, and they'll say, oh, I was thinking I'd have to move out and leave my house to my kids mm -hmm. so that they could live there. Maybe we could do this too, because the thought of building a McMansion with six bedrooms and having to share a kitchen just doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> but a duplex I could deal with. So I think it's going to happen. All right. And, and John, you know, Arlington schools, uh, you know, went, went through a period of time where, you know, we were adding lots of units to the county to accommodate those, those professionals who were working in the occupations not seeing a lot of students come from that population growth, but then it was the redevelopment in some of our uh, existing neighborhoods with homes of bigger sizes that were driving a significant amount of the school population growth. So the, the question generally is, how do, you, how do you wrap your head from a planning perspective for, for schools, how to get ahead of it so that you're not just simply 
doing mathematical projections based on past history, but getting more into forecasting what is likely to occur? Well, it's a bit of an art. Uh, <laughs> and um, I used to get a little frustrated because people would expect it to be, your projections, they're going to be 100% on art. No, they're not. It's a projection. It's a projection. Um, so that was a little bit frustrating. And, and I know um, my former colleague, Lisa Stengel, is con continually collaborating with county staff to make it consider more things to get uh, online, you know, housing developments coming online, looking at birth rates. But I want to um, challenge you on one thing, and that is it really wasn't that much the new developments that were bringing students in. It was the turnover of single-family right, homes. Right. Because, um, as yeah. we said before, Arlington is a place people stay, um, and so there are neighborhoods that have turned over uh, you mentioned your street, mm -hmm. right, Norma? Give yeah, me the numbers. Yeah, my street, whenever we moved in 35 years ago, had, I don't know, maybe there were like at least 10 kids that went to the Arlington Public Schools, mm -hmm. many of them little rugrats. Mm -hmm. Well, they all grew up and graduated mm -hmm. and are far away. And then we went through a period of just as... Uh, senior olders living there, but within the last 10 years, it's turned young again. And we now, we, I counted the other day, there were 25 public school kids on the block. So it went from 10 to zero to 25. And there's no more houses. Mm -hmm. There's larger houses where right. they knock down little ones like mine and put up big ones. but. It's still single-family homes. So one of the planning factors we do look at is housing generation mm -hmm. rates. So for, um, you keep great statistics that we use on housing types. And then we, uh, because we know where all the kids are, we can check what the generation factor is of kids per housing type. And uh, we would continually look at the generation rate from single-family homes and it was a great deal less, I can't remember the exact numbers, 40, 50%, 0.4%, um, in other words, right. generation per house. Some of the communities around us, like Loudoun and some parts of Fairfax, it's 80. Right. So that actually suggests there's a lot more room for growth. If all of those houses turned over, they won't. Um, but it's still a very low number. And then we would also see well, how many are we getting from high-rise apartment buildings? It's virtually none because it's mostly young people and children aren't generally in those. We'd look at townhouses. We'd look at garden apartments. We'd look very closely at the affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And there's a big distinction between the certified affordable housing that is built new by developers. It's not that affordable, and they limit the number of family members who can live in a unit of a certain size as opposed to the market rate affordable housing, some of the garden apartment complexes, where um, because it is so expensive to live in Arlington, families are living one per room. Right. So um, we kept very close tabs on those numbers, and that was a huge collaboration with county and schools to just see what was happening. And, and you know, it bore out in the results. You know, you could have a high degree of overall accuracy you know, it becomes less uh, precise as you're, you're thinking on the neighborhood level. But this kind of planning has uh, informed the number of seats that you helped spearhead yes. the school system developing, which uh, remind us, how, how far into the future 
was that, uh, was that planning process designed to take us? Um, well, the enrollment projections when I started were done for six years in mm -hmm. advance, mm -hmm. and now they're done for 10 years, and they're done with a lot more thought, as, as we just mentioned. Um, but then something like COVID can happen, and that completely threw everything off. Mm -hmm. And so um, we grew from about 18,000 students when I, in about 2007, 2008, and we're now around 27,000. That is humongous growth for a school district. Um, and we sort of managed it. Um, obviously, relocatable classrooms were part of the solution. Um, and we built a lot of schools. But right now, I checked with my colleagues, and um, it's pretty flat. And it's projected to be pretty flat. But the projections really aren't very good, because they're partly on a three-year you know, rolling number. So people moving out during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, taking their kids somewhere else, you know, having their kids still in school here or school somewhere else, it's really hard to account for that. Indeed. Christian, can I um, Please, just yeah. pick up on that? Uh, something Ron said earlier is uh, we need to think about this as a system of systems. Mm -hmm. And the wonderful schools that we have in Arlington, the facilities, the, it's got to have a vibrant economic base, and that relates to the planning. And I think... Uh, major decisions made by the county board going back a generation, generation and a half ago, uh, creating that Roslyn Ballston corridor, creating all that value. Um, you know, John would know better than I, but I'm not sure there's other counties in the country that uh, have locally generated revenue that would fund these magnificent $100 million high schools. So it's, a, it's part of a planning system, picking up on Ron's earlier point. Indeed. Yes, because we need to remember that in Virginia, schools are all built with local dollars, <laughs> as you well know. Yeah. yeah. So we're thinking about population for you know a, a minimum 25-year outlook. Schools, we're looking at a 10-year outlook, and all of these uh, perspectives, along with the vision that the community is is ever uh, iterating, all goes into uh, what we uh, put together in in Virginia, the comprehensive plan. And this is not a pro forma exercise in Arlington, we take it quite seriously, don't we, Ron? Well, indeed we do. And I think one of the challenges uh, historically when I was there is getting all the pieces really to fit together. Uh, sometimes the different components of the plan went different tracks. Uh, in, over the last 10 years, I think Arlington has integrated them a lot better. And there's some really good materials, some uh, graphics uh, that are available on the Arlington website that shows the interrelationships of the different plans. I wanted to mention about uh, Amazon. Uh, that's come up a couple of times. And one of the one of the things that was attractive about uh, the Crystal City, Pentagon City area, of course, was Long is Longbridge Park. Longbridge Park planning started in the 1980s and had to be sustained at least across six different county managers. This is this, it's a good illustration of how you have to take the long view and have a vision and keep working at it. That was one of the hardest projects that you can possibly imagine because of complex ownership, because of contamination, a whole host of things. That's probably one of the projects in Arlington that would have been the easiest to never do. And look what we have now. I come, when I come up that way, I usually come on the train and I always get a, a thrill as the train goes by Longbridge Park. But even bigger than that, Amazon effectively backfilled the massive losses that Arlington took in BRAC 
1906, 7, and 2006-7-8. Arlington was the most heavily impacted community in America, losing around 20,000 jobs and 4 million square feet of commercial lease space. That's more than most cities have in their downtown completely. And what did Arlington do? We started a 50-year vision of what Crystal City and Pentagon City would be. And that work in the, in the late 2000s, going into 2010 and after, truly laid the foundation for it to be the most attractive place on the East Coast for Amazon to land. And, and you know, Ron, when it comes to the, the work that goes into implementing these plans, whether they be through the comp plan or others, uh, a vehicle that we do it is through our, our, our capital budget. And, you know, particularly the, the capital investments that we make that are publicly financed uh, through, through bonds, you know, these take a, a time horizon or are projecting over a time horizon uh, that reflects the nature of the investment. So, you know, 30 years or beyond is, is what goes into thinking about those dollars that may be spent today in terms of what they need to be able to accommodate moving, moving forward into the future, right? Very much so. And the facilities that are especially important, I think, in this context are those we don't talk publicly too much about because they're not very sexy. And that's the water sewer system, really having the infrastructure <laughs> that can accommodate whatever new form of development that we have. And the real danger, one of the real dangers in the capital planning that uh, I was always very sensitive about is trying to do too much too fast and not leaving uh, capacity within the bond, within your bond, within your bond capacity, within your debt service to be able to respond to unforeseen things in the future. Uh, the plans are plans and the reality of the future is going to be different. And how do we build in some flexibility and capacity and agility to make adjustments to things that we can envision today? So, you know, I'm gonna, the next part, I, I think I need to maybe issue a caveat because this conversation has largely been uh, cheerleading for Arlington. And I don't think we should apologize for that. You know, you've contributed to great work for this county. Uh, we residents enjoy the fruits of that labor. Uh, but part of this conversation when it comes to zoning reform or potential options for new housing types uh, brings, brings to people's mind the concept of change. And I think it would only be fair to acknowledge that uh, people process change differently and have different tolerance for change. And I will take it as a testament to everything that you all have said that is positive about Arlington, that people are worried about having uh, deleterious changes, changes that are, are not uh, reflective of the kind of progress that Ron spoke about earlier. So I just love to get your thoughts on that, how you kind of view the, the notion of growth and change from your, your individual and professional perspectives. And, and John, let me start with you on this one. Well, I think I've got two observations. One is nobody could have really done anything about those single-family homes that were sold to families with kids who had more kids, you know? There's nothing you can do about that. You can try to control it, but I don't know how you do that. And the other thing is, you know, I met a lot of people in Arlington in the 10 years I was here. Almost everybody's moved to Arlington from somewhere else, and they moved because it was a great place to live, and many of them stayed much longer than they might have stayed in other communities. 
Um, and they all had a sort of image of Arlington when they, when they moved there, and that was what they wanted. But everybody else has moved since then, and even the people that are moving this week have their idea that Arlington is now. So it, it's always going to change. You can only control change so much. And I really like what Ron was just saying about planning has to have flexibility on it. Otherwise, it's no good because things will change. <laughs> so um, those are my two contributions to that conversation. Thank you, John. And yeah. Nora, I'm going to go to you next and, and followed by Ron. Yeah, I, um, I've been talking a lot with friends. And so far, everyone's been, oh, yeah, you could put a duplex in. That'd be great. No bigger than a single family house. That'd fit fine in the neighborhood. Go ahead. But whenever you think about, oh, what if I tried to put a fourplex or a sixplex there? Then you run into, how is this really going to work out? Is the sewer going to hook up right? And especially if you think about in uh, 2007, how's it, how's it going to fit out there? Is there going to be enough? sewer space and stuff and concern about the parking and all of that. Now, I think that can be figured out and I would love to see fourplexes and sixplexes all over. I mean, I walk past Westover all the time. Doesn't bother me at all, all those apartments that are about three blocks from my house. So it can be done, but I hear people's worry about it. Of course, maybe they should just come to Westover and see how we do it. There we go. <laughs> All right, Ron, over to you. Uh, I want to go to the Westover now and go to live in East Averna. Uh, so, uh, so change is inevitable. And as human beings, uh, we are pre-wired in support of the status quo. Because changing the status quo requires making a decision and the decision could be wrong, and we hate to be wrong, so we just stay with things, even if it's not working very well to us. And so the question, I actually do some training on this, I'm, I'm in the morning as a matter of fact. The question I ask people to ask is this, if you were starting all over again today, would you do it this way? And if not, then it's really worth examining, you know, what would you do differently and why? And I have to say on the duplex, question and, and trying to bring some increased density uh, in some of the single-family neighborhoods. We've done that before. I mean, there are some lessons there. It didn't necessarily create affordable housing. I lived in the Glebe in 07 at the very tip end of Arlington, and there are a number of townhouse developments in what was at one time basically <laughs> farmland. And it was a new form. It was very expensive form, and it's very expensive form today it did bring in some increased density. And so one of the questions that's really important to ask as, you're, as you, you know you're going to have to change, and you know that some people are going to not like it, people have been opposed to every change that Arlington's ever made, I can show you the scars. <laughs> the, the question to ask is this, what problem are we really trying to solve? And I would suggest to you if the, if the issue is affordability of housing, I think it is at least equally important to look at issue of housing subsidy as much as it is land use. We, subsidies have been a part of every housing initiative forever in this country, and every wealthy person living in Arlington 
gets a larger subsidy than every person living in affordable housing in Arlington through mortgage tax breaks. And, unfortunately, and so unfortunately, it falls to state and particularly local governments to provide the affordability subsidies that are necessary for lower income and middle income people. And if, the, if, the, if what we want in Arlington is an economically diverse community, looking at all of the options and not just you know, a little bit of tweaking in some of the single family neighborhoods is really important to take that broader view. Well, Ron, if you want to have a conversation about the regressive impact of the mortgage interest tax deduction, I'll invite you for that conversation. We'll do, we'll do that another time. I'm sure it'll be highly viewed uh, in, in our community. But uh, so, so much rich stuff there. I, I want to pause for a little bit because, you know, part of, of what we're hearing concerns uh, from, from individuals, not just about change, but uh, if you want to have a, an interesting barroom argument in Arlington, bring up the word density and then ask for people's responses. There are some people who, you know, automatically see it as a tool to create societal good and other people view it as a plague to be avoided at all costs. Um, I just love to hear your perspectives on it as both a professional and a resident of whatever community you're in. How are you viewing density? And I'll open it up to anyone who just wants to respond. Well, I, I think I, I'll jump in on this one. Yeah, you start off, Ron. Go ahead. Because the, the, the most striking uh, d discussion I had on density, I saw on density in Arlington was not a discussion about density. And it was on the re-envisioning of Columbia Pike. And in that effort, we intentionally didn't talk about densities or FAR or any of that kind of obscure stuff. That nobody, what, what's like 1.7... 3.0 FAR. Nobody knows what that is except a few people in Arlington. But most people don't and they don't care. The re-envisioning of Columbia Pike focused on form as opposed to density. And if we had talked about density, I don't think we would have ever gotten the form that we got on Columbia Pike. But because people were talking about what they wanted the pike to look like, and they were seeing pictures of it in real time, uh, in charrettes and in extensive activity that went on down there, I think we were able to dramatically change Columbia Pike, uh, which needed a real shot in the arm. And so I, I think how the conversation is framed is really critical so that people know what they're talking about and not talking abstractly. Interesting, interesting. Any other thoughts on that? I think the, the way that I hear that question, I, I think of uh, where to geek out on planning a bit. Um, you know, when Ron started, I, I think the plans were live somewhere, work somewhere else. And so it was the spokes in and out. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, during Ron's tenure and throughout the country, transit-oriented development, which meant mixed use, live and work in the same place as possible. So one of the challenges with that is the affordability, the appreciation uh, of that real estate around these high opportunity areas. So I think this next way we need to get into is mixed use and mixed income. So that housing is, is imperative in that, in that sense. So that there's housing availability at different price points, um, not just the 200,000 jobs, 200, jobs that somebody mentioned before, but at different price points, so yes, We've often said for years police and firefighters and teachers can't afford to live here, but 
through the pandemic. I'm glad that those grocery store workers at Centro at <laughs> Harris Teeter in, uh, on Columbia Pike were there to serve us. But we need these different price points of that housing availability close to the jobs. Right. Anybody else? Yeah, I think density in many people's mind is confused with having nature close. That there's a sense of if you live in a high-rise building right across from a big park, you don't think you're dense because you can walk out <laughs> your door, see trees, see flowers, see butterflies. Whereas the farther away you are from nature, the more you don't feel good, that it's not good. I mean, we have that whole thing about biophilia, which the county signed that it um, is a member of the biophilia network. But to me, what it is, is that every child in Arlington should be able to open their window and hear a bird sing, whether they're in a high rise, a duplex, a single family home, and that we have to work at having nature around every building apartment so that when you go out, you don't feel like there's only people in concrete. That's what I think people get confused about density. So let me say something about schools. Yes. So in, as you know, we built a few schools in the last 10 years, and we went through heavy community engagement around it, and sometimes it was grueling but we always learned a lot and it was better for the process. But one thing we heard time and time again is particularly with elementary schools, families want to live within walking distance. And the more families that live within walking distance, the fewer buses we have on the roads and all of those benefits. So that density brings benefits. And uh, I was always a little amused um, when we were talking about uh, the fleet school and the expansion of the career center into a, a high school. Because what that allows for people who live in that neighborhood, they will be able to walk, their kids will be able to walk to every school they go to. They'll be walked to, walk to elementary right. school, middle school, and high school. And there's tremendous diversity in that neighborhood. What I feared was that the density and those, the, the attraction of that would, in the end, put the prices up and mm -hmm. possibly reduce at least the economic diversity. Mm -hmm. So um, certainly from schools, it, it works well. Now, the problem where we have with schools is that um, we don't have anywhere to put them. Mm -hmm. And there have been some great things done. I think building on a parking lot at Jefferson yeah. was a good thing to mm -hmm. do. Um, building on a field that wasn't really a field at Discovery was good. And we built the wrong building when we first built the building at um, whatever it was called, Reed School, <laughs> Reed School, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. And we had the courage to demolish it and right. build what should be there. Right. So um, you, really have to think, you really have to think about that. Now, there are some great things happening. The uh, Arlington Community High School being able to find space within the Amazon yeah. building mm -hmm. is fantastic. That's absolutely where everybody should be going, so the biotransportation right. hub. The jobs are there, all, the, all those things are good. So um, I would really uh, urge everybody to be open in thinking about where schools go and what amenities they have. Um, we recently um, did some work on a school in New York City. The school filled the lot 
and the playground was on the roof. And I'm working on another okay. one now where it's the same. And there's a little piece of space on the side, which will also be a playground. Um, but I think we have to look at what the amenities are and do we need all of those? We have them in other places. As you said, Norma, we have fabulous parks in Arlington mm -hmm. and all of them are within walking distance of somewhere. As long as there's shrubs up there around the playground for them to look at. And, and they're natives. Right. right. And the stormwater right. is okay. dealt with as we yep. happy. There you awesome. got it. Yeah. I'm happy. I've heard from someone in New York City who's, uh, I don't know if it's the same place, but uh, another school with a similar park situation. And they've said the added uh, benefit is school safety. Kids mm -hmm. are removed from street level, which limits the ability for yeah. Uh, detritus and other things to be found in the parking lot for people to have access to kids from the street. They love it. So, you know, it's, yeah. it's interesting how probably 50 years ago, no one would have imagined that you would put a playground on the roof, but it could become not just something that's necessary because of space, but a desired outcome. Yeah, if you look at Google Earth, you'll find them all over New York. Yeah. City. yeah. So, you know, Norma, go ahead, go ahead, Norma, Ron. Ron. I just wanted to point out, Norma and John, we're not talking about density. They were talking about form. Yeah. And yeah. perfect illustrations of what I was referring yeah. to. Yeah. Oh, and, and that's perfect because, you know, we've got another question that I think will require a little bit of unpacking. And it's, it's positing that many argue that population growth is inevitable and beneficial so long as there are high wage jobs to support that growth. Um, and then there's a second part. But before I get to the second part, I'm going to take prerogative to just un unpack that. Many may argue that, but I'm not sure that's what the conversation is in Arlington. You know, population growth, I wouldn't describe as being inevitable or value-laden with the word beneficial. In our case, it is the result of planning and projection. So something that is is something that you have to manage or otherwise it manages you. I think that's at least the guiding presumption of the region. And I think in Arlington, we're also, I think, uh, at a different place where we don't just look at jobs as being high wage and then considering them beneficial. We have a desire, a vision for this community, as Chuck, you alluded to, that we have inclusive growth, mm -hmm. that it provide an opportunity for people of different income levels. Ron, as you talked about, the contractors and others who serve the Amazon high-wage employees uh, doesn't really make a whole lot of sense ecologically if they have to commute in from Lorton to come to Arlington to go to work. So there's this whole idea that growth uh, be, um, be inclusive uh, in addition to being sufficiently accommodated for by other plans. But Leaving that aside, the other question uh, that's embedded there is whether or not there is an ecological impact, and presumably by the question, a negative ecological impact from increasing density. Chuck, I'm going to tee this up to you, because today at the Council of Governments, uh, we looked at some interesting uh, data as it related to vehicle miles traveled in the region, despite the population growing. Um, there is perhaps a, 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 an un an uh, unintuitive uh, correlation or connection to what happened with vehicle miles traveled. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I, I think the, the broader context uh, that you were referring to is uh, looking at greenhouse gas emissions. And it was 
Back in uh, 2008, nine, led by elected officials from around the region, uh, Jay Fassett, notable amongst those, those leaders, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. We set targets uh, uh, for 2012 and then set a, a target for 2020 that we would be, as a region, 20% below 2005 levels for greenhouse gas reductions. And we announced today that our region did indeed uh, achieve that target. So some of the factors were a cleaner grid, but to your question, the second was uh, vehicle miles traveled per, per capita. capita. Yeah. So while we grew 660,000 people this last decade, <laughs> vehicle miles traveled um, per capita decreased, and that was the second leading cause to decreasing greenhouse <laughs> gas emissions. So say it again, job or housing closer to jobs mm -hmm. is a, is a major factor in not only improving transportation outcomes, <laughs> quality of life outcomes, because people don't have to spend so much time on, on an onerous commute, but also uh, has good green outcomes too. Greenhouse gas emission right. reductions, nor is how I mean green in this context. <laughs> well, green's good in that way. And, you know, I agree with that totally, and I would take exception to that. I'm the only one in my family with a college degree. There's a lot working in, uh, as wait staff, you know, the, the person who checks you in at the medical clinic, et cetera. And they live in Arlington, often in these houses like, like you were talking about. So let's give them a chance to move in more. And John, you know, you uh, presided over the design and construction and opening of uh, I think one of Arlington's larger capacity elementary schools that also happened to be our first uh, net zero in terms of energy efficiency uh, elementary schools with Discovery, Discovery, right? Yeah, Discovery was um, actually the first school to be LEED certified zero energy. There are multiple zero energy <laughs> classifications. And it was about 650 students I think we designed right. it for. But then we went up, uh, Cardinals about 850. Mm -hmm. And it is still very unusual around the country to see four-story elementary mm -hmm. schools like mm -hmm. we have at Fleet mm -hmm. and Cardinal, but I haven't really had people complaining. Right. So um, that, was, that is quite revolutionary. We still rarely see it except in urban situations. And the Heights building is on several le seven levels. So, right. mm. But just illustrative of the fact that you can accommodate a growing population while still reducing your ecological footprint, at yes. least in some areas. Yes, right. yes. You are increasing, actually you're increasing the density of the school. You're right. applying more urban solutions right. to schools, to sites that appear to be suburban so that you can retain more of the space around the site. But I, I would still say, if Arlington needs to build new schools, it's going to be very challenging